2: Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of intriguing and knowledgeable people. Most of us have a particularly special place that plays the role of a sort of spiritual lodestone A beautiful and peaceful environment where we can feel at home, secure in the knowledge that no matter what life throws at us and wherever we might happen to find ourselves, it will always be there, quietly waiting for us when we get the chance to return. For me, like doubtless many, many others, that place is the National Gallery. I first started visiting the National Gallery when I was a student in London over thirty years ago, often spending far more time there than in my classes as it happens and I never visit London without going back there at least once. Of course, the paintings are both magnificent and wonderfully familiar, but for me it's really the whole package. The building, the layout, and equally significantly, the exceptionally high quality and quantity of deeply engaging and accessible talks by a unique array of hugely knowledgeable staff that so magnificently bring out aspects of the surrounding artwork that I would surely otherwise miss. So it's hardly surprising that at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, I found myself subscribing to the National Gallery's YouTube channel. I'm not, it must be admitted, a particularly avid YouTuber, but watching National Gallery videos went a considerable distance to helping me through these weird times. It's not the same as being there in person, of course, but it was a pretty close second. Which is how I found myself becoming a sort of groupie of Matthias Wivel, the passionate and articulate curator of Italian 16th century paintings. Matthias, I quickly concluded, would make an excellent ideas roadshow guest given his obvious erudition and unique experiences at the upper echelon of the international art world. He was also, I was intrigued to discover, a longtime fan of comics, which struck me as both somewhat unusual and very much worth exploring. And it turned out that that wasn't the only artistic surprise that was awaiting me.
1: I grew up in Copenhagen and Both of my parents are art historians, so I ended up making the very not independent choice of following in their path. Although before that, I did attempt various other things, but to no avail. That really was what (laughs) I wanted to do. Um, So that's sort of in a nutshell where it comes from. I grew up around art and also in my extended family, we have artists and literary critics and journalists and so writing and art were around everywhere and the conversation would be that like along those lines it would be subjects mostly in the humanities and i as, as so many kids i drew a lot as a, as a child and and sort of got the bug there I, I i did later on give it up because i was too self-critical i think and i, I, I some, somewhat regret that to this day that i gave up drawing uh, because it would just be so painful to get back into it. Obviously, I could do it, but uh, it would just be so painful now to get back into, into doing that. I guess that has to be the inner drive to do it, and um, I haven't maybe felt that quite strongly enough. It might still happen. Looking at images critically was something that that was just natural in a way because my, my, my parents did so, and we would talk about it, and, and it would just be part of the conversation. It's not that they would necessarily force it on me, but... Except, obviously, as as the child of museum-going parents, I would have the whole experience of being bored out of my brains at, at various institutions across wherever we were traveling, and, and obviously in Denmark, and getting museum legs immediately <laughs> as we stepped into in, in the door into the whatever you know, like the local museum, <laughs> uh, going on art, art, artist visits with my dad. My dad was an art critic, and so oft, I, so he knew a lot of artists around, and would visit them and I would sort of come along sometimes because he was, and my brother, you know, he would take us along because he had no, no childcare provisions for us. So it was just like, it was just part of the, like, the environment for me. If I can just interject and ask a few specific questions. So you mentioned that
2: your dad was a critic. You mentioned both your parents were art historians. Did they, if your dad was a critic and you said that he, he knew uh, artists, presumably he was a critic of contemporary art or at least partially a critic of some contemporary art. Yeah. So I was going to ask you what, what periods they were art historians of and to what extent their areas of specialization overlapped or didn't overlap or, or what what was the story there?
1: So my mother is a is a historian of, of, of early photography. That was like, that was her main focus. And she worked at the, the library section of the Royal Academy in Copenhagen. So it was, it was that, that modern period. And it was photography in particular. And my dad was, I mean, he was a critic. So he was, sort of omnivorous really uh at least with western art perhaps not so much non-western but he would he would both write about contemporary art contemporary art exhibitions and more historical things and he has a real sort of pan-historical view of art i mean he 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 very much collapses time when he when he talks about art and that that so so i think that's also part of my approach uh from 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 very early on that the fundamentals are the same whether you're looking at the altamira caves or you're looking at, at at a comic book i mean it's it's not it's or anything in between you know it, it's it's they're the same concerns and and really the approach is not so different in terms of if you if your critical approach to it and that's also where you know comics came in very early he he was an enthusiast of i think it was, it was mostly through my dad uh, as well and i think he probably he regretted that at certain points of his uh of his parenthood that i got so obsessed with comics but um but that was there were certain comics that he'd read as a child and he would read those to us my brother and i and and, and that kind of got me into that and it, it seemed like a, such a dynamic art form that that just worked so immediately on you and and so therefore i got very into it, it and it, it started with the with sort of the usual suspects at least in europe i mean the usual suspects are energies T- tintin and and uh, surprisingly, perhaps for, for some Americans, it's Carl Barks's Donald Duck comics, like the Disney comics of Carl Barks. Those were the two of the major, major things. And then it wasn't long before I discovered the American superhero uh, universes and, and got completely obsessed with those as well. And one particular figure has has stuck with me and, and, and remains a touchstone is, is Jack Kirby, who is the more or less, the, you can you can argue the, the the main creator of the Marvel universe, and also very important contributions to the DC universe. The two big the mainstream comics companies in in America. So those things just filtered through, and I I just never, for me, it, it, there was never that much difference. I mean, it was it was the same kind of interest. It was also storytelling, of course. I mean that that's what comics bring. They they bring they bring you the storytelling. They bring you the narrative, and. That's how I started reading. And that's not unusual, or oh, at least for, not for kids of mine or earlier generations. I think maybe now it's, it's less, less normal for, for your kids to read comics. I mean, they're, they're, they're just not as, as widespread among young readers as they used to be, but it was a very normal way to start reading. I mean, so my literary formation also started there.
2: And What about your brother? You've mentioned your brother on several occasions, just, just parenthetically, was he also bitten with the, with the comic bug uh, or the art bug I mean, more generally?
1: Not as much. I mean, I think he, he, uh, he rebelled much more, um, against the orthodoxy at home. And also my parents were divorced at a very early age. Uh, so, and we actually grew up individually. So I grew up with my mother and he grew up with my dad we would see each other all the time. It was not like we didn't, you know, there was a lot of interaction. I, I, it worked very well. I, I thought all things considered, even though divorces are always messy and, my brother grew up with my dad, who's sort of very uh, more more forceful uh, personality in, in some ways than my mother, and I think he had for him for him it was necessary to to choose a different path, and so he eventually I mean later on obviously not as a kid but eventually he studied economics and uh, works in banking. I think for him it it was definitely like he's had enough of that at home like let's let's do something else. It's not that he didn't have the sensibility. I mean he was a, he was an excellent. Um, what, how do you say, like draftsman who was a child, a draft's child. Um, and uh, I don't know how you'd put that. It's such a weird, it's, it's, I, 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 like the, I like the expression, uh, which is not really correct English, but drawer, <laughs> that people increasingly use also in these more gender-sensitive uh, times where you say drawer instead of draftsman or draftswoman. It just becomes so compassing. Anyway, he was very good at that, but I think he, he just, um, he, he decided to, you know, to go for something else, they just, just don't want to mess with that, and I probably wisely, in some ways. Whereas I was less independent-minded and, and ended up like really just following the path of. of and I'm, my mother was really great for that because she was she's an excellent conversationalist. She's she asks probing questions. She's great at you know finding the critical points to draw out when you when you're looking at something or when you're thinking about something, a story or or work of art or whatever or anything else. Like she's very analytical. Um, and that, I think, was, was extremely helpful as well. And I had that all the time, you know, because I was living with her and it was just the two of us, so a lot of the time. And
2: you mentioned your interest in, your early interest in drawing. There's another aspect to this, I think, that you also alluded to about writing and the narrative aspect and storytelling and so forth that also appealed to you through through comics. To what extent, you, and, and you've written quite a bit and you clearly at least from my perspective, you clearly enjoy writing, you clearly enjoy uh, doing research, you enjoy, I would imagine, that synthetic uh, aspect of putting ideas on paper and and, and we'll, we'll get to that later on. But did you think yourself about combining these things when you were younger, about actually creating your own comics, uh, when you thought about actually drawing, was it, was it tied to this idea of storytelling and, and creating oh, yeah. comics at the same time? Was this, an, was this an urge of yours?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did a lot of cartooning and, and, and comics, like sort of childhood sort of experiments with comics, also with friends, did quite a lot of that. I, I did enjoy the storytelling aspect of it. I think I started increasingly, when I stopped sort of really drawing a lot, I channeled that into role-playing games, so tabletop role-playing games. And there you really, I mean, the storytelling become, is such a central part of that. Yeah, that became another obsession through my teens, creating worlds and imagining different worlds and, and different types of characters and the conflicts and the resolutions and character development and things like that. And so i spent a lot of time thinking about that I, I i remember like so that's how i got into reading history because it was often historical periods we would, we would that'd be the setting we didn't just do fantasy stuff we also did like historical settings uh, and and so you know, you look into, like, weird parts of, like, what, what, what was the Norwegian geography? What, what, I would, like, what does it look like? And, that, 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 and, and whatever, you know, what is the mid-20th century history of uh, the Pacific Islands? We had a set, like, it was like Volcanic Island setting, for one thing. You know, like, so that, it, 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 was, it was an excellent way of getting into these things. And, and, and the storytelling really was part of that. It was, it was a very way of writing stories. And I liked that. I, I, I sort of also regret, but this just, it's such a time-consuming thing. And once you start having a, like a professional life and children and so on, like getting together for a role-playing session just doesn't happen. And I think many, many people, former role, role-playing role gamers uh, lament this. It just doesn't, you can't. It's just, it's just too difficult. So that's fallen by the wayside too. Again, maybe one day when the, when the kids are a bit older, I can get together with some friends and do it again.
2: Yeah. So returning to your story you move on to do as i understand it an undergraduate degree at the university of copenhagen in in art history and film is that is that uh...
1: yeah yeah so i started well i mean it was yeah it was a bit of a route but I, I yes previous to that at roskilde university i did a year of sort of basic humanities inside sort of a, a, a sort of integrated program where you do humanities broadly for the first two years before you start specializing so I did a year of that and it was quite heavily focused on, on philosophy and on the enlightenment and, 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 and that period. And then, yes, then I started uh, film and media studies at Copenhagen and I just realized, I mean, I love film I, and film is another, you know, another obsession. Uh, there are many of them. Uh, another one that we haven't touched upon, which is very formative and extremely important is, is hip hop music, but we can get, maybe get back to that. I mean, that is really, it, it's, it, it sort of informs so much of, of, of how I think about other things but I started film studies and I, I just realized you know this is this is great I love it but and I also started doing amateur film and that's again another thing where you get into the storytelling a bit so like with, with some friends we did films together but it was only a, like little over hundred years and that there's this whole swath of history that is not that, where film <laughs> wasn't invented you know and it's just seemed to be a waste to just restrict yourself to the 19th 20th and now the 21st century so I just ended up deciding, okay, I'm going to do the same thing as my parents and, <laughs> and, and, and changed over. I mean, I was going to do film and then I just like, okay. Uh, I mean, it, it seems like it was just in the cards. So I, I switched to art history and then had film as the as the, the minor. So I, uh, I want to pick up on that and then
2: move. Eventually, we're, we're going to get to you being at the National Gallery because I have tons of questions about what that life is like and, and, and the business of being a curator and so forth. But I think this is important. You keep saying these things that that intrigued me and, and that forced me to want to stop. So you mentioned the hugely significant role that hip-hop music had on your life. I'm not a hip-hop guy. I don't know anything about hip-hop music. Sure. I don't listen to hip-hop music. This comes completely out of left field for me and, and, and is a bit of a shock. So <laughs> I want to stop and, 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 and ask you to embellish upon that because I fear that we might not get back to it otherwise. So perhaps you can talk a little bit more about that.
1: It's just, it it's just enormously important discovering this, this new music in the early 80s, you know, when it really was new and you'd see people popping and locking and breaking in the streets. I mean, it, that, that became, it, it, it was internationalized very quickly. Once it started appearing on wax, you know, once records started actually being produced, which happened in more or less in 78, you know, and, and then started happening more and more it was internationalized so quickly and it was just the most fascinating thing it it was it was a a vision of of youth culture in america that you just did not get anywhere else and for me it was just the most the the, the most exciting music around and and sort of subculture and so i just completely sort of devoted myself to that more than like i i i was utterly bored with, with rock and roll and so on, with, and, and the pop music that other kids listen to. It was this little subset. You had your own thing with a few other, other kids who were really into this. Again, it's the, it's the, the way of using words, both storytelling-wise and expressing yourself. I mean, the, and because there are more words in, in, in rap than there is in other song lyrics, it just has a different... There's a different literary aspect to it that 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 appealed to me and, and and the rebelliousness, of course, when you're young, you know, that is that is super important. And I think something that gets to sort of certain truths of art is that hip hop is transgressive. I mean, it, it has always been transgressive. It's a it's the, it's the voice of more or less oppressed minorities and often indulging more negative aspects of their lives, as well as the positive ones and the fact that art is a way of, of expressing what's real, real emotions, real situations, you might exaggerate them, but, you know, it's a space where you can experiment with those things and it doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. And I mean, this is the truth, of course, like people describe literature that way. And that, that's what it is, you know, and, and, and I think that's I'm, I'm really allergic to anybody saying that art should not do this or should not do that. And it, it comes from hip hop. I mean, hip hop was there was all this outrage of obviously in the early 90s, you may remember. With parental advisory boards and, and censorship and, and certain, certain artists actually being prosecuted for encouraging people to kill police, uh, uh, allegedly, and things like that. And for me, it was just like, no, no, that's not, they're talking about it in music. Of course, music has an, uh, an influence on people. This is the whole thing about music and politics that is an endless discussion and never be solved. But instead of doing it, like, like actually telling people that this is, this is what's happening, this is what people are feeling, I've, I felt it be enormously important. And also, it opened up this whole world of minority cultures and, and of the African-American experience to me, uh, which I was very interested in also in high school. It was just such a, such a dynamic and, 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 and different viewpoint on life that obviously I had no access to in, 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 otherwise in, in, in Denmark at that time. It's more diverse now. And, and that was just absolutely fascinating. So I, you know, it, it opened up so many things. It's, it's, it opened up minority viewpoints. And... Feelings of being oppressed and and struggles against oppression and and so I started reading Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and about the Black Panthers and all these things just informed my my consciousness in the in the, in the years when I was a teenager uh, and and hip hop really spoke to that and so when Black Lives Matter and the, the police violence against minorities in America became something everybody was aware of. He's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been hearing about this of the music for 20 years now, you know, but now everybody has camera phones. And so so now suddenly it's filtering through to privileged people like, like me. Uh, but I, I felt that it was extremely helpful to have had that background and, and sort of understand that there's very different experiences out there, even in the privileged Western world. For, for me, that really, um, that, that helps me think about what I do now. That's, you should be allowed to say, I mean, it's really the thing. You should be allowed to say whatever you want, if it's in a, if it's an, I mean, in general, I mean, in general, you should be allowed. But art should also be free from interference, from puritanism and censorious impulses, because that's, art just doesn't work that way. And to some
2: extent, art has been perennially subversive. Maybe that's overstating the case. And, and I'm certainly not implying that there weren't people who were conformists or, or in fact, even advocates propagandists of a particular point of view or authority figures and that's happened a lot but this notion of art as a at the risk of sounding cliche a vehicle for expression for self-expression for uh potential rebelliousness that's something well which is endemic to the entire cultural and artistic lives and dare i say the artistic temperament i mean you you it's It's not Absolutely. exactly a news flash that that that, <laughs> that the great artists of all sorts of different dispositions and all sorts of different uh, proclivities and orientations have been doing their own thing uh, in opposition to the authority in opposition to some of societal values in opposition to the prevailing mindsets of of various people but anyway let me let me interrupt my uh, sociological rant and ask you a more specific question which is. So I can see you're imbued with these inspirational ideas, this transformative experience of being exposed to, to some extent, radically different worldviews and modes of expression. And then you go to New York to do your master's degree. So several years later, you were exposed as a teenager. Then you go to New York. Was there a sense when you were in New York, when you were in the United States of, oh yes, I understand this. I identify with this because of my experiences before, or was this, oh, this is actually quite different than what I had in mind, or what what was your initial reaction uh, when you were in the United States compared with what you had been, dare I say, prepared for through your experiences with hip-hop music and, and, and other... I, it was
1: just, it, it was just like mind-blowing coming to New York, and it was the first time I visited America. I, I yeah, I, I had never gone earlier, so I, this was when my, my mid-20s, and... It was, it, I, yeah, I mean, it confirmed a lot of things. It, it felt like, it sort of felt like home uh, in, in some ways, but it was so much more vivid and intense than I could have been prepared for. I just loved it. I mean, it, New York was just fantastic for me. It was just, it was the most intense, such a rich experience living there for a few years and, and experiencing the city, the people, the way things work. Of course, also, uh, it was also at the time when sort of my academic studies solidified. But the city, the way it's laid out, the way, the way, the way it looks, the way the, the buildings look, I, all these things that are, I, I, I'd only seen by proxy through, obviously, like anybody from film or whatever, but also in the comics I read as a kid, you know, the, Steve Ditko's Spider-Man, all of the, the water tanks on the, the top of the, uh, the buildings, you know, those, like, that, 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 that. Steve Ditko has this, he's sort of, he's this weird Randian um, cartoonist who invented Spider-Man and, and other things and, uh, and, and, and drew New York in this magical way very abstracted but you know those water tanks they really stayed with me um and so that was like seeing that actually for real and 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 realizing how close to lived experience those things that you know i'd listen to in hip-hop or I'd, I'd read in comics or whatever i would watched in films uh were i mean that was that was that was great but it, it felt it felt very natural i mean it, i I did, I did feel somewhat prepared uh if like like you say it it, it and it felt Very much like home. I could have, if not for other reasons, I could have stayed there for much longer.
2: Right. But you did go off and you went to do your doctorate in Cambridge. So, just again, I don't want to draw this out too long, but I know you did your thesis on uh, Titian as print designer and producer. And I don't know what that means other than those words. So, maybe you can just speak a little bit about not just so much what you did, but why you were particularly attracted to do what you did and your experiences through those efforts and and your your dawning perhaps realization of, oh, this is really interesting or maybe I want to move off into this direction on a career trajectory uh, as a result of that.
1: Often these things happen a bit randomly, Uh, I think, and then maybe not after all. So I'd come to New York, I was at Columbia and I was going to do just one year first initially and then it turned into a master's I stayed there for another year. And um, I was going to do 19th century that's what I've been doing in Copenhagen I love you know that period like the the, oh. the the modern era of the of the 19th century. And then I took a class with Professor David Roseanne at Columbia and and he's renaissance specialist particularly in Venice and and then it was just great. he was just a great teacher, and that so I just gravitated towards that, and and I then also I think I, I immediately sort of decided to do Titian, um, and that's probably in part because I've been hearing a lot about Titian from my dad when I was a kid. You know, it's one of his favorite artists. He would talk about him a lot. So uh, and that I, I just hadn't had the possibility of of really studying it in Copenhagen, so because there wasn't much offered in, at the university, and suddenly that that was the possibility, and and. Then I, I also spent a lot of time at the, uh, the Metropolitan Museum, where I did a course on a drawing with Carmen Bambach, who's the uh, who's uh, the head of Italian drawings there. And it just it became that. And and so for my doctorate, I applied to Cambridge amongst other places, and I I got accepted because I, I probably I don't know why they accepted me, but I felt I had a rapport with Professor Paul Giannidis, who was at the um, at the department at that time, and who became my supervisor for my PhD, and he amongst other special uh, specializations one of the artists that he's really focusing on is Titian. Um, the other one is another of my favorites Michelangelo so who's, who's later become um, another area of focus for me. Yeah working with him was, was just extremely energizing and, and, uh, and, and super helpful in terms of learning how to look and really study very closely both drawings and paintings. The printmaking aspect I don't know I think that was I was inter- interested in drawing and graphic arts, right. and again, that probably also comes from earlier experience. And doing Titian's drawings is, is a very, very complicated subject matter. I don't want to, you know, get too much into it here now. It's ex- extremely difficult, and I think it's something that does require more experience than I had at that time. I had this idea that I would do something about drawing and print, prints, and how there was this big, there's this big problem drawing in New York, uh, which has been very controversial within the very small subset that studies. Italian or Venetian Renaissance drawings it's a drawing uh, that relates to a woodcut by Titian uh, a woodcut designed by Titian early around 1515 something like that and it takes two pieces of foliage and combines that for two different places a monumental woodcut in four in four blocks it takes two bits and it puts them together you know it's 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 two bits of uh, like disparate bits of foliates put together to form a new composition, just a sort of a a, a group of trees. And traditionally it was regarded as preparatory for the woodcut. I mean, this is a group of trees and it was used for the woodcut. But then in 1979, a German scholar, Peter Dreyer, uh, who also spent time in America, looked, like started, like noticed something was wrong with this. And what he proposed and which is borne out by technical studies is that actually these two bits were combined on the piece of paper. They're off prints from the print combined on the paper, and then gone over in pen and ink to create a new com- composition. So this person had access to the blocks, the, the, the wood blocks, and took partial impressions of the two different wood blocks on a piece of paper. And then on top of that, there was a faint impression in printer's ink. He took pen, like a pen and, and iron gall ink, brown iron galling, and went over it to create a unified composition based on these two samples. And here we have the hip-hop inference, you know samples you know like and so that that just appealed to me you know that that problem and it was clear to me that that dryer was right and there's that it's just not this one there's a group of these creations and what does that say about titian's or the creativity of people in titian's workshop and, and his way of thinking about images right and so that was my starting point that that particular problem and i wanted to sort of get more to a more of a conclusion Dreyer's proposal was, was that these were fakes produced by the early collector's market in, in, in Venice, that they were simply fakes, they were like imitating Titian drawings. So that never quite, I mean, no, various people accepted his, his hypothesis but did not accept that part of it, and I didn't either. Uh, and I, I thought it was more of a creative exercise of some sort. And and so that was like the start of it. And then it just became, okay, actually, I should just do all the prints, <laughs> you know, and, and have this as one of the chapters, <laughs> you know, uh, because actually they're all interesting and you understand it much better and, and do a catalog, raise any of the prints. And... And, and and Prince Fetition is a very interesting. It's a sort of it's a, it's definitely a diversion in some ways. It's it's sort of it, it's a it's a it, it's something he could he did on the side occasionally when he had time. But he would use it in, in interesting ways. He would use it to develop ideas hmm. that he would later implement in painting. Or he would in the early early part of his career when printmaking came into Venice as as a as a big independent art form, it was a like a really a creative um it's an open field for for creativity you could do things you couldn't do in painting you could you could do like weird compositions you could do subject matter that wasn't really because it was more tied to to printing culture and 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 to also to low culture which is another thing that interests me you know like high and low and what's that you know is that even even a thing and yes it is but it isn't and you know again comics and hip-hop like low culture you know popular culture uh and 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 so-called high culture and so that particular distinction Of course was not really formed at this time but also it was particularly collapsed in prints uh in 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 venice in the early uh, decades of the 16th century where you had like great paragons such as Mantegna and dura who who made prints uh central to their artistic endeavor and titian did that when he was young he experimented a lot and did these woodcut designs obviously he didn't cut the wood himself he had others do that Um, but but he was experimenting with and and, and developing an expressive approach to line uh, that I think he was developing in his drawing and then perpetuated in prints. That only later would become obvious in his painting. I mean, he's very famous for being an expressive painter, uh, that, like visible brush strokes and, 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 and very, very like sensual uh, painter. But where, where part of the point is that you can see his 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 uh, manual work on the canvas, and and that actually is prefigured in his early drawing and printmaking. And so that that became uh, that was the sort of. The, the motivation to really look into this and see how does this actually tell us uh, tell us about him as uh, what, what can we learn from this uh, in terms of understanding Titian as an artist and his creative sensibility and I think that was very helpful uh, and then later I mean later in his career he gets more into what so-called uh, re- reproductive printmaking where printmaking becomes a business and a way of perpetuating your images and promoting yourself and making money uh, by taking your most saleable uh, inventions in, in painting and and then issuing them as prints, and there also, I mean, creatively he couldn't stop himself. So he would develop his his inventions further when he was doing that. He would he would build on his his inventions in painting in the print and and and, and um, tailor them to to that linear medium. And so and the whole Descartes, I mean, this idea that Titian is like the supreme painter, the supreme colorist, not somebody who's who's uh, invested in line in, ma- in, in in drawing lines and and and, make, and defining form through line that is challenged by this idea yeah. that actually he was thinking, how can I translate something painterly into line and vice versa? So that was just, I, to me, that was a, a, a new way of understanding Titian. And since then, and this is, there's been an orthodoxy that goes back to 16th century uh, Renaissance, you know, criticism, which is Vasari, first of all, Giorgio Vasari and his lives of the artists who obviously had an aesthetic agenda and, and wanted to, um, promote the, the, the central Italian way of, of, of creating art, which was a very systematic, methodical way of of starting with drawing and then ending with painting or sculpture or whatever what have you. But like to have a very systematic build up towards the final work. Where and and and, and because he had that bias, and he was a very acute critic, I mean he was a great he was he, he's he when you when you read Vasari, you you get a lot of what you need. Um, But you just have to recognize these biases and people knew knew these biases. there was not unknown like so he he sort of denigrated a venetian practice because that was the other real center of creativity in terms of art in the 16th century and uh he denigrated that because he felt that the venetians were not systematic enough they didn't draw they didn't learn how to draw they couldn't draw properly and they would just go straight to painting or or at least like be very undisciplined about whatever drawing they would do and yeah, that that is that is largely correct, but it's it's is it necessarily bad or is it just a different way of doing things? And and so that getting into that whole thing, and I think people have been aware of this bias for a long time. Obviously, it's not not a secret to any art historian, but it still informs our way of thinking about art, especially Renaissance scholars. I mean, it's just very difficult to escape from Mazzari, even if you know that you know you shouldn't just adopt what he says. He's such a persuasive critic, and it has and so there's been this orthodoxy up until like. You know, the last twenty years, I think that Venetian draftsmanship is not really—I mean, it's just that's just not, not as much of it. It wasn't as important, uh, and and I think that that has been increasingly challenged. And I, I've been very excited about being involved in in, in that shift in scholarship, where looking at, at, at Venetian art as, as something that is equally dependent on thinking about design and drawing, but in a very different way, in a more organic way, where it's not a before b and where it's sort of sort of a logical progression but where there's a more organic interchange of change between line and, and and color and actually as you're painting you're also going back to the to to, to paper and drawing there and then you're imp- implementing that in painting and, and and so on and also increasingly it's another important really uh, i think rather seismic i think shift in the study of, of paintings in the last, again, I mean, it's it's longer, but it's 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 accelerated in the last twenty years. It's a technical investigation and the our ability to look under the surface of paintings uh, and and understand the layer structure, the way things are laid down, and to be able to see underdrawing. So the the kind of underdrawing that you find laid in often with the brush, sometimes with a from a cartoon with pouncing or whatever, especially that's a, especially in central Italian painting. But if you look at Venetian painting, it's often drawing laid in freehand with the brush but ba- but often based on drawing some paper um sometimes it's even using a, a, some kind of transfer technique and all these things have just nuanced our understanding of of venetian practices and and in, in, indeed like practices across the italian peninsula and beyond i mean it's it's been great for art history in, like object uh, focused art history in general i mean this, the 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 technical investigation like it's really any, anywhere. And it, it, it's, it's starting to become applied more to drawings as well. And there are also amazing things one can find out about drawings by using technical uh, means. So all of that was sort of percolating a bit when I was doing my dissertation. It wasn't quite as, I, not everything, I, a lot of the things I'm saying now has also come afterwards, but it's it was that which attracted me. And I think the, the prints were just a, a bleak way of, of getting into understanding a broader area of creativity that didn't excessively or, or exclusively focus on painting uh, itself uh and and so that that that's what it became it became a and i've done a catalogue raisonne that i hope one day it published of all the prints relating to titian whether he was involved in or not uh in his lifetime I, I haven't gone beyond his lifetime i mean that that suddenly because there's an explosion of reproductions after his his, his uh his paintings and in and, and subsequent centuries and so many and so i just side like, like that. that's for another day you know like i'm not going to get into that um, so that's what it is. That's that's what the, the PhD was.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com.
2: I want to have the opportunity to get to the life of a curator. I want to explore that a little bit, if I if I may. So let me just move to that. And, and I want to ask a couple of sociological questions first, because even the question of how one becomes a curator and how one moves into that line of work and the different aspects of the sociology be- between, because there's obviously a huge overlap between the academic world and academic positions of being art historians and, and actually being a curator, but they do seem distinct, at least to my to the to the naked eye, as it were, to to, to my situation. So the first question I have finally is: uh, You do your dissertation, you do a couple of positions, uh, as I understand it. You do a, a stint at the at the Morgan Library, you do yeah. in, in New York, you do uh, a, another two year stint uh, in a research fellowship in uh, in Copenhagen, and then you move on to become uh, the curator of sixteenth century Italian art at the National Gallery. So that seems to me, as somebody who knows nothing about this field whatsoever and doesn't pretend to, that seems very rapid. That seems like quite a rapid ascent. So I have two questions. My first question is, is that right? Is that actually a rapid ascent to get to a position of being the curator of 16th century Italian painting of the National Gallery from a relatively young age? And the second is, what's it like sociologically in that situation? I can imagine, again without knowing, that when you arrive there, there would be all sorts of people, because this is presumably a very coveted position that you've been able to attain. So there would be all sorts of people who applied for that and haven't got it. Were there hostilities? Was it difficult to settle in? Were you immediately accepted and embraced in the National Gallery family? Tell me a little bit about that. And and then just to reiterate my first question, is that a usual career trajectory or was it somewhat unusual in your view?
1: I think it's fairly usual. I I, I don't know, I, I took a long time studying. <laughs> I took a long time figuring out what I wanted. So I, I wasn't quite as young as some people might be when they when they get a permanent like achieve a permanent position. Obviously, permanent positions in our field are rare and 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 difficult to obtain and very desirable because it's just there's just a few of them. Yeah. And and to to actually be able to do it at the national galleries, is an enormous privilege. I will say this. Uh, I think the Anglo-Saxon world, so the U.S. and and the U.K. are much more welcoming to foreigners in these kinds of jobs than you'd find on the continent in Europe. It's much harder to, to, as as an outsider, to come in and and get an equivalent job in in France or Italy or uh, Germany or or Denmark, for that matter. And I already already knew the U.K. UK is the country I spent the most time in, uh, besides Denmark. So i I knew it well i knew people here already uh, through like the years i spent in cambridge and so on so it felt you know just like a, a continuation of those things and and there was definitely no uh no problems at the gallery they were extremely welcoming and it was it's not a big it's not that big a place it seems big when you see it from the outside and you like it's it's reputation obviously but it's a small collection with a fairly relative to its size, it has a fairly large staff, but it's still a small staff. You know, it's not it's not an enormous department, the curatorial department. So you immediately are involved in the whatever work goes on in the department and, and it, it exchange with your colleagues and, and, and so on. So it, it was a very welcoming place uh, and an ex- extremely uh, inspiring place to, to, to be, I, I must say. I mean, it, from the beginning, it was just suddenly so many things were possible. Uh, it's a place that still values curators more than a lot of other uh, com- comparable institutions, especially across Europe. It's just curators have, to, to a certain extent, been—I wouldn't say necessarily marginalized. That's a bit too strong—but deprioritized somewhat in the running of, of museums across Europe. Other concerns have, have have taken over certain aspects of of running a museum, and I think the National Gallery is 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 a, is a, is a a strong holdout in, in that respect that as a curator you still have um you have a lot of freedom and you have there's a lot of possibility and collaboration across departments so it was an extremely positive experience i i can't say whether you know how unusual it is that i got that job i i was obviously obviously su- surprised that i got it and and I did have not, I think one of the reasons, what was helpful actually in the interview process and so on was that I think I'm never going to get this. So I wasn't nervous about it. It's like, <laughs> like I like, I might as well, you know, like they've invited me for an interview. Okay. I might as well, first First of all, I might as well apply, you know, you know. and then I was invited for an interview and and sure, you know, and one of the interviews was with the head of conservation and, and, and the director and going around the gallery and, I just felt like I'm not going to get this job anyway. So I might as well speak my mind about like the, the display and, and, and what I think is great about it and what I think is not great. you know. And maybe that was helpful. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what their thinking was, but uh, certainly it was very exciting and, and, and also a little uh, daunting initially to suddenly realize, okay, I'm going from a research fellowship. It was at the museum in Copenhagen. And I was enjoying it. We had a great life in Copenhagen, Whatever, we had our first child. And then suddenly, okay, we've got to go back to England and now with a child, you know, and, uh, and set up life uh, in England. So it was a bit daunting, but it was—I mean—the job has has was has been so inspiring and 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 fun. So it's it's just that that has really driven a lot of it for me. Yeah,
2: and my understanding is that your first exhibit was uh, Michelangelo and Del Piombo.
1: Yeah, that's the first thing I organized. Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, so I'm wondering. As you come into this job, there are these various responsibilities that you have. Presumably, it's expected that you will uh, be curating uh, exhibitions and special exhibitions. And I want to talk about the details of what happens there. Then, of course, you've also got all of the wonderful masterworks that you have to be taking care of. So how much of your time is devoted towards designing and and curating special exhibitions as opposed to looking after the paintings that are there? And then how long... uh, uh, well, let me just ask that. So let me let me yeah. stop there and ask you that.
1: Uh, so this is one of the, I think, great tensions uh, in, in most curatorial jobs is that exhibitions are extremely time-consuming and, and demanding and difficult. And also, we've been living through a blockbuster era, especially when you're in a large city and, in a, and a prominent institution like the National Gallery, where exhibitions are really um, a, pro- a huge priority. And that does mean that sometimes you may not have as much time to devote to the collection which is really the core of your responsibility as a curator that's why you come to the institution that's why people visit it's it's of course also the exhibitions and the exhibitions contribute to the life of the institution and the research and and all that but the collection is the core and that is 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 attention i was lucky enough to start just as, as the Paolo Veronese exhibition, the great Paolo Veronese exhibition that uh, Xavier Salomon, who from um, from the, now at the Frick, uh, was was organizing with Nick Penny, the director, and um, and he came and I knew him already and I got thrown into the installing an exhibition and talking about and, and because Xavier was in, in New York, I, I immediately had to sort of represent the exhibition to. The audience and, and and do tours and all that, even though it, it wasn't something I planned. But it was it was a delight. Uh, Veronese is a f- fantastic artist, and that I already loved, so it was no problem. Um, but I, I very quickly got into this whole track of, of planning exhibitions. I had this idea for uh, the, the the raising of Lazarus is one of the biggest paintings in the National Gallery, and it's it's painted by Sebastiano del Piombo uh, with the involvement with a certain involvement by Michelangelo uh, in fifteen seventeen. And so the 500th anniversary was coming up. Another colleague told me that and I thought, yes, we should do something about this picture, this enormous picture, which has the first inventory number in the collection. It's NG number one. It's the first. It was part of the foundational part of the collection. It was given the first number. So it's an important painting historically to the gallery. And it's also just an important painting. It was in the high Renaissance. It was painted alongside Raphael's great transfiguration uh, in the the Vatican in competition with Raphael. and so, I just thought, we have got to do something about this, and that, and that turned out to sort of snowball into a big exhibition. I thought initially we were just going to do some kind of display with a few loans, and, and it, it turned into a, a big ex- exhibition, and it was it was an incredible experience to work on. And in terms of seeing how things were suddenly possible, like paintings or and sculpture especially, that you just figured this is going to be impossible to borrow, and. Um, we I, most of the things we wanted in that exhibition came in, I and mean, it, it was it was a lot of work. It was it was several years of of traveling to Italy and meeting lenders, not just Italy. I mean, all across Europe actually, and even to the U.S. Uh, a lot of learning and building a network and so on. Also because I was new, so I had to do all that. Um,
2: yeah. So I want to stop you uh, because it's the mechanics of how things snowball. There's this idea of it's the 500th anniversary of the raising of Lazarus, and what shall we do about this and then the relationship between Michelangelo and Sebastiano and, and that's, that's an opportunity to dig deeper in all sorts of different ways. This is an idea, but I want to I see if I can identify exactly the steps and how the snowballing works and what's actually going sure. on. And also what your expectation is. So you're the new guy who comes in. You've got this, you know, this this wonderful dream job. Uh, You've got all these paintings to look after. You have to settle in. You have all these things going on. You have this idea about, hey, there's this painting, National Gallery One. Let's do something about that. Then what happens? Do you go to the director and say, let's have a, a small exhibition about this. It somehow becomes bigger. How does it, how does the story unfold from there and, and, uh, just to give me a sense of how these exhibitions actually occur in the first place. Cause all I see as a consumer is the, the exhibition, you know, here it is, it's coming you know, next year or whatever. Yeah.
1: I mean, it, it does start with conversation and formal conversations with co- colleagues and with the director. And then if, you know, if, if, if that, those go well, if you get a sense that there, this has legs, you present it to the curatorial department first and the director, like do a formal presentation of it. A formal yeah. presentation. And the formal presentation is saying,
2: uh, is saying what exactly? I think we should have uh, an exhibit along these lines with these pictures yeah. and involve these other institutions and, and, yeah. and perhaps see if we can get a hold of these other
1: yeah. paintings yeah. Yeah. and yeah. so yeah. forth and so on. Yeah. Okay. And you present some kind of a concept, like some kind of idea. What is the narrative? What is the, what is the story you want to tell here? Right. I think story is extremely important with exhibitions. Right. Uh, most exhibitions, not all, but most exhibitions is very important. Uh, And so you present that, and if the director, I think ultimately, but if everybody likes it, I mean, the curatorial department will, like your colleagues, will ask questions and have uh, ideas and so on. But if if the director likes it, uh, you start, you you do a more formal uh, paper presentation where you write out for the exhibitions department. And then the exhibitions department decides, I mean, if, if... decides like where can this fit in the schedule like when could we do this right and so it gets the dates are fixed and that's when it it starts becoming real when you have the dates Uh, often before you get to that point you inquire with lenders of key objects whether this would even be possible right you know that's often the case because if you can't get this key work then maybe it might not be worth getting the Doing the exhibition, yeah. So there's often some informal work before you get to the point of approval and 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 uh, setting the dates, where you talk to colleagues in institutions that you're potentially going to collaborate with. Also, you might at, at the same time, if if it's an exhibition that is is going to be a partner exhibition with another institution, which is very important because it basically it reduces the price um, and of course extends the reach of the exhibition. Exactly. But it complicated for other purposes. I mean, other, some things can't travel. Like the, the raising of Lazarus can't travel. I mean, it's so fragile. It no. would just never, it would never yeah. be a partnering exhibition. So, uh, so in that, this case, it wasn't, it wasn't what was happening, but generally you look for a partner because that halves the price, you know, you share the cost. Um, obviously it's a little bit more expensive, but generally it's, it's half price if you're two institutions. And so, uh, so those things have to be, there's a lot of informal chatter before you, you actually uh, commit and get the dates. Once you have the dates, you start working towards that. And there is a, like a, a set schedule for deadlines for various things. And as you approach uh, the actual uh, opening dates, you there's, there are deadlines for catalog, there are deadlines for interpretation, for design, uh all the didactic material like all these things are produced in the in the years leading up to to the exhibition and it is usually several years out especially if it's a large uh what we call the saint's brewing style exhibition because that's where we have our large exhibitions generally in the, in the basement of the saint's brewing not like have and did not go down there because the painting wouldn't fit yeah uh, but but generally it's down there so that's what we call them uh, those are the major exhibitions the, the smaller exhibitions we have which are one room or two room three room exhibitions don't have as much lead time, but it's the same basic procedure. There's a, there's a department that deals with a lot of this, which is the exhibitions department. The tutorial the department, it's more at the, at the conceptual stage and the planning stage. And then obviously along the way, in terms of the content, we collaborate. But all of this sort of figuring out dates, schedules, uh, how the pictures are going to be transported, all this. Uh, there is the the, the the exhibitions department that that uh, that does that and and um, and they are it's it's one of the most <laughs> frenetically operating departments in the in the building uh, because it is really complicated and when you throw in a pandemic it becomes <laughs> a complete sure. nightmare you know <laughs> and everything has to be rescheduled and you have to find new dates for all the partnering institutions and have to contend with uh, transport and and travel restrictions and it just becomes I think. You know our exhibitions department has really like pulled out all the stops in the last two years. It's it's been it's, it's been really tough for them, and and they've they've, I mean they've managed, but it, I think at <laughs> a certain cost. Um,
2: I, I think the phrase and when you throw in a pandemic, uh, <laughs> uh, it becomes unmanageable. Probably works across the board for Absolutely. just about anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's turn to the actual ideas in terms of the narrative, in terms of the story, in terms of the motivation. You're thinking about the relationship between, in this particular case, so let's take the Michelangelo and Del Piombo exhibition as a, as a case study, as it were. So you're intrigued by this notion of this particular painting and also the relationship between these two artists juxtaposed against Perhaps their their attitudes towards Raphael and there are all sorts of other stories that that are associated with this, why they collaborated, how they collaborated, what it means about the different styles, what it means about the styles of, as you were alluding to before, Venetian art as opposed to art in Central Italy and so forth. There are all sorts of different narratives that that are associated with this. You say, I've got this interesting idea. Your colleagues start getting more and more excited by it. You're involving other people. Um, Talk me through how it works from that point onwards. So I, I bought the book to this, which is, uh, which is an amazing book that you've edited. You involve all sorts of other experts to give their perspectives, their ideas. So two specific questions. How difficult is it for you to be making that decision? Is it just your decision and how difficult it is for who am I going to ask to have this input and that input and, and be involved in, in this intellectual aspect of the story that I'm telling. And then I'm also curious to know, as you're moving forwards with this, presumably your own thinking is changing. You started with this idea about the, the, these two painters, this particular painting, some aspects you had based upon your knowledge. But presumably, as you do research, as you think, as you talk to more people, your own thoughts develop and your own ideas change I would imagine potentially considerably in the three or four years from starting with an idea to actually mounting the exhibition so so maybe tell me a little bit about that
1: First, is that true and and then give me maybe some examples it's absolutely that. true so this exhibition i had to imagine something a bit smaller just about the genesis of of the lazarus and immediately when i presented it to my colleague susan foister who's the deputy director at the, at the national gallery said this really has to be a bigger exhibition and i think in part, that was motivated by the name Michelangelo, <laughs> you know, like you're doing something Michelangelo. Are you going to do a small exhibition of Michelangelo? It doesn't make any sense. You know, you got to you got to expand that. Like he is one of the great artists of the, of the Western tradition. So but so that was part of it. But it's also I think she also just saw that the material was rich enough for, to do that. I was nervous about it because I thought, you know, we, we're not going to get the loans and it's going to be impossible. Michelangelo is notoriously impossible because the sculptures don't move. Like you can't get a sculpture; they're, they're not going to be lent ever. You know, they're not going. You can't even do a Michelangelo exhibition in Florence because you can't move them from the Academia to the <laughs> Uffizio or whatever you like, you, whatever you need to do. or The Botticelli, you know, you, you can't. They just they don't move. And um, and as for paintings, it's the Sistine Chapel, you know, and the Pauline Chapel. They're frescoes, so there are like there are three, four easel paintings, depending on how you conceive it. Luckily, two of them are at the National Gallery. So that was helpful. So the, it's almost always drawings with Michelangelo, and 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 those are in constant demand. And um, of course, I wanted to have some drawings by Michelangelo, the ones relating to the Lazarus. But then it was just clear that some of these things that you just mentioned, like the the the, the idea of a Venetian artist formed like same generation as Titian, Sebastiano uh, Venetiano, as he was called, because he's from Venice, who relocates to Rome, meets Michelangelo, becomes a close collaborator of his, and really changes his style, but retains some of his Venetian insights as a painter. And he's a very, very accomplished oil painter as he arrives in Rome. And then he starts understanding, because how could you not, if you work closely with Michelangelo, how could you not be influenced by this like creative powerhouse? And I imagine actually that it was the time that Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and he almost certainly must've invited Sebastiano onto the scaffolding and it would just blown his mind to see Michelangelo working on the last parts of the chapel where he was painting alla prima. I mean, he was not he was not drawing anymore. He was not following this ideal of like systematic. That what he did generally do that, but he'd gotten so confident in fresco painting by this point. He's painted the whole ceiling that he was just painting directly in fresco. You know, and seeing that would just, just blow in his mind, like Sebastiano's mind. And you can see how his form becomes much more monumental, much more sculptural, and his choice of color range is deeply influenced. And this is something I I don't think was acknowledged before. Uh, is deeply influenced by Michelangelo's very odd and unnaturalistic and extremely affecting choice of colors on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. You know, when the, the, when the ceiling was cleaned 30 years ago, it was it was a sensation to see, like, how like how intense the coloring was and, and very controversial. And indeed, you know, like, you've never seen that for the first time. Like, nobody's ever colored anything like this. And this, again, you know, goes against these ideas that Michelangelo is somebody who does sculpture, doesn't care about painting, and he doesn't understand color. Yeah, this is, this, this, this is like really original. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I don't know where it comes from like that color. And that becomes a, a whole uh, approach to color in, in central Italy. If you look, think about Florentine mannerism and all those like acidic colors, and it comes from Michelangelo, I think. So anyway, so Sebastiano does that. And, and to study the way that the Venetian and Florentine traditions intermingle in his work. And then beyond that, how they collaborated. Michelangelo has, has generally been understood as somebody who did not collaborate. He was this solitary genius uh, who did not enjoy collaborating, and all when he did collaborate it was always with these substandard artists that he gave a drawing or something, and that's how Sebastiano has been regarded in general um, except for a few people who've championed him. He's generally been regarded as a sort of derivative artist who did not have a lot of original I- ideas of his own, and there's some truth to that. I mean, that he was he was not the most inventive artist, but he was a He was very, very uh, accomplished in oil painting and had a distinct sensibility as an artist in terms of what interested him and and what he wanted to communicate. And it's interesting to see how Michelangelo does not just give him drawings. Actually, they they, and this is uh, through technical studies that we conducted at the gallery in in preparation for the exhibition, we actually looked. uh, it's very difficult to do x-rays and infrareds of a painting that large, especially x-rays are very difficult because you just can't. So, but infrared's a little bit easier, and it was down at one point. And so, they, so our, our uh, science and, tech and conservation departments had recorded infrared ref- reflectographs of of the of the painting, and suddenly we saw we saw underdrawing there that nobody had ever you know we'd never seen before. It hadn't been done before, and we realized that this was a combination of Venetian and Florentine approach. It was not one thing. Hmm. And it was not subservient to Michelangelo. It was actually, it became apparent that Michelangelo only entered the process very late. He did not start out as, a, as somebody who gave Sebastiano drawings. And it's it's very complicated to go into here exactly the, the exact details, but basically the, the figure of Lazarus, one or two figures around him, designed by Michelangelo, that's, that's always been known since Vasari. However, it turns out that Michelangelo only revised them at a late stage when Sebastiano had painted almost everything. So... This is Michelangelo coming in, seeing the picture. He was in Florence at the time. He was no longer in Rome while while Sebastiano was working on it uh, and finishing it. Michelangelo had gone gone to Florence to work instead. And he came back to Rome briefly. He comes into Sebastiano's studio. They look at the painting together. They realize that there are tons of, uh, there's many, many figures in this altarpiece. It's the Raising of Lazarus, Christ is in the middle, uh, but there are all these figures around him. Very interestingly, very Sebastiano. All these figures, figures reacting to the miracle in very different ways. It's a very, it's a, it's a picture that encourages us to think about the miracle because you see all kinds of people reacting in different ways and discussing it. Some are dumbfounded, some are horrified, some are super impressed and, 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 and see what that acknowledged the miracle and so on. So that's very Sebastian. He's interested in this kind of dialogue and, and, and variety of reactions and subjectivity. But what they saw was like in, in the midst of this whole cacophony of, of reactions, Lazarus was, I mean, this is my supposition, but Lazarus was a bit lost. Sebastiano had done a, slight, a slightly sort of placid Lazarus with his arms down the side, and same, same scale as everybody else. And it's like, this is the this is the main part of the, the, the picture. We have to have Lazarus. And so Michelangelo immediately, I mean, again, this is just my supposition, but it's based on what we can see underneath the surface. Michelangelo says, Lazarus gets lost in this. Let's do something. And then he, and we have the drawings. He did a, a series of drawings for Sebastiano, who then proceeded to revise according to these drawings first, once he revised it, and then he revised it again. And they, uh, these two revisions correspond to two different drawings. So as he was painting, Michelangelo was drawing. It's not that Michelangelo gave him a drawing and then he painted it. Like he was, he stopped, like he, he, Michelangelo sketched out something for him, he started painting, they realized that didn't quite work. He drew again and then he changed the, he changed the figure again on the, on the panel. And so really, this is Michelangelo entering into a Venetian way of working. That's organic way of working I mentioned earlier, where drawing and painting are interdependent. And he's collaborating with, with Sebastiano. He's not, he's not just dictating. Yeah. And we followed that track through their other collaborations and also their eventual fallout. Uh, they famously fell out over the painting technique of the, of the uh, Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel in the, in the early 30s. And the story there, again, is that Sebastiano was his meddling uh, Venetian who uh, didn't, and it comes from Vasari, but it's been, it's been you know, subscribed to by most scholars, that Sebastiano wanted, because he was, very, he was very technically proficient and interested in oil paint, as I said, and he was developing a method, or rediscovering it, it had already existed in north of Europe or whatever, but he was, it was not really understood in Rome, a method for applying oil paint to the wall which is hard because it, it runs. It's very difficult to make it stick and make, it, uh, make, make, make the colors right. And so he developed that technique based on, on pre-existing knowledge. But he was the, he had the breakthrough of actually making it work in competition with Raphael, who's the third player in this. Raphael is there at the same time. He's, a, he's Michelangelo's great rival. He becomes Sebastiano's great rival because of, I think, Michelangelo's antipathy towards to him. And Raphael is also doing this. And Raphael dies before. I, mean, I think Raphael actually makes the breakthrough. but he dies before it could be implemented. And so his, and he's painting the, the, the Papal Apartments and, and, and in the Sala di Constantino, which is the last of the, of the rooms there. He paints two figures and there's some disagreement whether he did this or not, but two of the figures I think are by Raphael and they're in oil. But when he died, the, the, uh, his, his uh, Giulio Romano and, and Gianfrancesco Penni and his other uh, workshop, um, I mean, his assistants who take over the decoration go back to Fresco because they can't make it work. And Sebastiano is having a lot of fun with this and letters to Michelangelo saying, Raphael's boys can't figure this out, you know, but I figured it out. Mm. So anyway, who, who knows? But anyway, so it, and it's, very, it, it's a very competitive scene where you have artists interacting and stealing ideas from each other almost in real time. You can follow it in almost in real time. And so Sebastiano developed this technique, and the story then goes that Michelangelo comes back to Rome. He's been in Florence for 20 years or 15, 15 years, comes back to Rome to paint the, the Last Judgment. And Sebastiano suggests that, why don't you paint it in oil in my technique? And, and the idea is that, no, 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 like Michelangelo would never paint in oil. And that's, that comes from Vasari. That is, an art, that is a, a, an art form for a medium for lazy artists and women, you know, like Sebastiano, lazy artists, you know. And, and it's, not, it's not untrue that Sebastiano maybe was in the later years, a bit, a bit lazy, but, uh, or just like burned out as, as a painter in some ways. But actually when you look into it and the technical investigations of the, the last judgment uh, that were made when, during the restorations show that there's oil in it. That Michelangelo actually did use oil, and there's an early um, an early account by Pellegrino Stabili, who's one of Michelangelo's followers, who said that Michelangelo actually did start painting in oil. I think Michelangelo took took cue from from Sebastiano. He had to paint this enormous wall, and to, and he was quite he was older at this time, and he hadn't painted for I mean he'd done sculpture and architecture. He's not really been painting for a long, long time at this point. So it just well, let's do that. You know that's probably going to be easier. And then he realized it didn't work for him. And then he, and it's documented. He took it down and, and printed it in fresco. But that got turned into a story of Michelangelo's heroism and, and Sebastiano being this kind of uh, meddling um, figure. And that's, the, the truth is more complicated. So all these kinds of things. So it's a personal story of a relationship and a friendship that goes through rocky periods, but also is, is truly collaborative at certain points. And so it's, it's, it created a much better understanding of, of, of certainly of Sebastiano, but also on aspects of Michelangelo, who of course has an enormous career outside his his collaboration with Sebastiano. But it was it was in that sense uh, a very intimate exhibition, even though it's quite large. I, I found and, and very satisfying to do because you, as, as you said, you know you discover these things as you go along. I came in, even though I I, I did come in as a some, somewhat of a Sebastiano champion, I learned so much more about how much he contributed by looking closely at these works and and. From the technical studies we did and all that, then I, I would have, and it, it took several iterations of, the, of writing the catalog essays and so on to really get it right. And it was very helpful to collaborate with some of these people. That I, as you, for, to answer your other question, the people who collaborated with the, on, on the catalog were people who knew more about it than me. You know, you go and find the people who know more than yourself, and then you get bring those in. Uh, and so it was, it was my former uh, teacher Paul Janidis uh, from Cambridge, and it was Costanza Babbieri from um, from rome who's a sebastiano specialist and they really helped sharpen my critical sense of how Sebastiano has been interpreted and 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 that that uh, contributed to a much more nuanced catalog of course people some people will disagree with some of the conclusions we make because sure. it is ultimately interpretation but i think we've managed to tell a very compelling personal story uh through this and i i think that that was one of the ways of connecting with the audience i think is extremely important that you don't don't just Put up a bunch of masterworks and don't have a story. It's it's unless it's a it's another. I mean, and this is a bit of a tangent, but if you, if you, you can do an exhibition that is purely visual, but then that's the that, that's the story in a way. Like you you then you have to organize the, the the works in such a way that there's a visual logic to them, and that's often very hard. Actually, that's that's a really this is a complete tangent here. But it's a, it's a either you have a story like story of of the artist or or the, the times or. or or the theme of something but like something that that makes people understand the whole of the exhibition as they go through it uh, and, and 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 come out with some insights into something you've got to focus their attention in some way I think you can't just sort of throw things together randomly but if you want to do something that's completely unintellectual and just visual it's a problem because how do you sell that uh, in through this process we're talking about like I'm going to put together these paintings and it's going to work, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and, and like, you have no intellectual argument. It's not a, there's no scholarly argument. It's just that I know this is going to work. That is not going to fly. And, and so I actually, think we miss out in a way. And that's sometimes galleries can do that when they do contemporary art shows and whatever, they have a bunch of artists and they invite some artists they think will work together and they just put it put it up. They don't necessarily, they often overlay a narrative with some arts speak guff, but it actually, it's often are these two artists going to work together? Is, are they speaking to each other? And I could just envision, for example, doing a uh, an exhibition of late Titian and, and and late Degas. And it's all about color and painting and sensuality. And that's it. You know, there's no art. I mean, of course, Degas knew Titian. And, and fine, you know, like, and he would have, uh, he looked, he learned from it and whatever. But it, that's not the point. The point is, let's see these two old artists moving into new, constantly moving into new territories in terms of their understanding of, of their craft. And paintings that just on a very basic level are simpatico, you know, that deal with similar uh, states of mind or emotions or sensations. But that's very hard to sell if you don't have more of an argument. If you don't have a scholarly argument, it's very hard.
2: Well, and it's also about, at least for me, so I have perhaps a good case study because I don't have a background in this, but one of the things that I took away from this that I thought was particularly stimulating, and that is how the technology is linked to the, uh, the form of artistic expression, which is linked to the content and what one is actually trying to say. So let me try to be a little bit more, more specific. So there's this story, wow, there are these Venetian guys famous school. They work in oil. They're wonderful with oil. They have this free-flowing style where they're able to change things on the fly. They're they're very oriented towards color and expression of color. And they have this fluid sense of creativity. And Del Piombo is a, a, a paradigmatic example of that. So is Titian and so forth and so on. And then you have these people who have this focus on, on drawing and preparation and background and this incredible rigor, the central Italian style and Perhaps Michelangelo is the archetypical individual.
1: Absolutely, it's
2: yeah. representative of that. And and what I mean by technology is, of course, oil is a is a new technology at the time, right? So uh, it's and, and Michelangelo, he could say all these pejorative things. Well, it's for whatever old women or lazy women or lazy artists who, who look like women. Yeah,
1: this whole gendered aspect, like that, is feminine, you know. Uh, and the other thing is masculine. That's also a very interesting subject, by the way. I don't, I don't want to sidetrack you, but that—that's part of it. Venetians are fe- uh, sort of feminine and like touchy-feely, and uh, and modern <laughs> times, <laughs> masculine and rational. <masculine. laughs> it's very stereotypical, it, yeah. Right. So you 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 have
2: all these you know uh, pissing on the other for all sorts of various reasons, and you have your lexicon of the day as to how you you make your pejorative statements and how you emasculate your opposition or, or whatever it happens to be. But what's interesting to me is that both of these things work. Both of them are are expressions of genius. Uh, The idea that you can actually create on the fly, the idea that you can manipulate uh, your oil painting in such a way that you can say, okay, I've done this and I've done that. Oh, let me do something else over here. And and you're not working from a pre-prepared sketch, uh, or at least not rigorously working from a pre-prepared sketch. That can create something of outstanding, compelling beauty and an enormous emotional impact, and then on the other hand, you can also work from this very rigorous, pre-prepared uh, argument, and you can also do that. So it's this—it's this idea of not just two different schools. You know, these guys who live in this part of Italy do that, and those guys who live in that part of Italy do this. It's—it's it's different ways of harnessing the tools and the approach to be able to construct something of, uh, you know, enormous evocative range. Incredible emotional power, just overwhelming beauty, and sometimes they can even work together, as as you were mentioning on on the raising of Lazarus, to to be able to coherently produce something uh, uh, really unique and 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 significant. So it's that's to me that's a really riveting intellectual strand that I get as an independent observer from all of this. That there are there are all sorts of different ways of skinning the cat, but at some level. It's deeply related to what they're trying to accomplish, the concepts, the beauty, the power of what it is that they're trying to
1: express yeah uh, and I think it's it's very relatable and I th- uh, in, in a way, you know creativity describing creativity, getting making people who read the book, visit the exhibition, look at the works, feel some of that discovery that you're also making as a curator, I think is 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 important and, and making it relatable I, I, I think you know, it's 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 a very sort of practical creative reality that we're trying to um, show, and I think that it's one of the one of the compelling avenues of making an exhibition, or indeed just showing your collection that you, that you can take. You know, it's I find that to be very fruitful. The challenge is always making it accessible. I, I think it's a very important part of all the humanities is is to be able to communicate what it is that you, you're thinking about, and the and your discoveries and so on. It's not just making the discoveries, it's communicating. It's the both. It's 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 both research and rhetoric. Uh, and an exhibition is, is, a, is a prime example of that. Whether, I mean, there are so many things you discover as a, as a curator when you organize things, you're blinkered in so many ways. That as, a, as somebody who's a specialist in an area, you, you just don't think that people won't even understand what you're saying here or, or that kind of, even if you're not using specialist language. I mean, that that's like fairly low bar to not use too many... Uh, weird words that people don't understand, or or, or sort of layer things with too much theory, which they're not going to care about anyway. But sometimes it's very simple things. In the Titian exhibition, and I think there are many interesting questions relating to this in the Titian exhibition, because it also plays into the current moment of of heightened awareness of social justice issues. I mean, this is a very banal, banal example, The Rape of Europa, which is one of the six paintings it shows europa the, the the princess being abducted by jupiter the bull and then there's a cupid on in the water so they're running into the water and so there's there's the cupid uh, riding um what i just in my label said a dolphin there's a cupid riding a dolphin the thing about the dolphin and i actually discovered this standing in front of the painting in the exhibition with some visitors saying it doesn't look like a dolphin and indeed, it does not look like a dolphin because it's not, a, it's not like a naturalistic dolphin. It's like the kind of shorthand for a dolphin that you see in Renaissance art. This is how you do a dolphin. It's sort of an abstracted dolphin. It's, a, it's, it's what you see in old maps and things like that. You know, it's not a, it's not a, it doesn't look like a dolphin. And I just said a dolphin on the, on the label, you know, that, that's, you have to be aware of these things. And Next to it is, is this is this uh, is this spiky fish, and I'm not a specialist in fish. I don't know exactly what it is. That looks like the real thing. That's something Titian has seen in the fish market at the Rialto. That's fine. You know, there you can say a whatever it is. You know, um, but but you can't say it's just a dolphin because people don't. You know, will have that question. It doesn't look like a dolphin. What is that? You know, and a more serious aspect of this, where and, and something that I'm rather ashamed of because I was aware of it, but I did not actually communicate it is. Perseus and Andromeda, which is dependent to this picture, which shows uh, the princess Andromeda chained to a rock, encroached on by a big sea monster, and Perseus, the hero, floating in from the sky, flying in his winged sandals to to kill the monster. That's it. So the stories uh, from antiquity of Perseus and Andromeda explains to us that Andromeda is an Ethiopian princess. In the picture, she's white. She's lily white, you know. And... Even in Ovid, she's described as white, but in other ancient sources, Ovid was the main source for Titian. But in other ancient sources, she is clearly described as black, which makes sense. <laughs> she's from Ethiopia, uh, and so people and, and in the in, in the exhibition label just wrote uh, Andromeda was an Ethiopian princess, blah blah blah, and like people come in and they see Ethiopian. She doesn't look Ethiopian. I mean, you know, and again, that's that's just the blink. Of, I knew that there was this whole problem, but I didn't think far enough, and that was stupid. You know to explain in the late, oh, just take out Ethiopian, not get into that, get into it in the catalog, which we didn't either. We didn't get into it in the catalog enough either. We really regret that. But to put Ethiopian in there is confusing.
2: Yeah.
1: And if you put it in there, you have to explain. You have to explain, well, I mean, Titian was never going to paint a black woman uh, in this way. You know, that that would not be uh, the convention. You know, he, he would do her white. He would paint her as white, even though, you know, she really shouldn't be so uh, and you would have to explain that whole thing, or reserve that for the catalog, and so little things like that, you know uh, you have to transcend those those biases that you have and, and and just be blinkered in so many ways as indeed, you know, which is the whole point of of oh, part of the the point of the the argument for uh, an awareness of these issues is that there are a lot of things we take for granted, especially as white men, I mean they're just things we don't think about, and um, it's high time we did so. Then the whole question comes, how much do you do in an exhibition? How much do you lean into that right. uh, and how much do you let leave to the, to, to the audience? And, and I think for the, for the Titian exhibition, which was scuppered a bit by the pandemic, but thankfully now is at the Garden Museum in, in, in Boston, uh, right. has, a, has had an extended life. It was also in Spain, as we, we talked about initially. That exhibition is, is six pictures that all center around issues of sex, power, Desire, love—all these very complex emotions that govern our lives—which is really central to Titian's whole way of thinking. I mean, his, his interests as an artist are in all the the, the 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 aspects of ourselves that we don't control, that but are nevertheless extremely important to how we act and interact. So, desire is and violence and you know like sex and all these things are are, are very, very central. And they've they've generally been sort of played down in the scholarship around these pictures, even though it's like really clear that this is what it's about. And it's very accessible. It's like somebody that anything, anybody can recognize these things. You know, it's, it's like something everybody lives through situations like that in some way. Okay. So they're, they're translated, he's using mythological stories, mostly from Ovid to illustrate these very human situations. But he's, that's what he's doing, and I think it's a unique opportunity to bring these pictures together to talk about these issues and to de- demonstrate that, yeah, these are 500 years old. They talk about classical mythology. They have like supernatural uh, phenomena, but what they're really and they're, but they're really accessible. They really do describe completely basic things that everybody has an opinion about and has lived, you know. It, and so that uh, making people connect because there's often a problem. People feel feel. Intimidated by old art. Uh, that's what they, often I hear from from people in the audience. They're saying, like, "I don't know how to what to look at first, how to think about this. I feel I don't know anything about it." Um, and so there's a tendency if you gravitate towards something, it's more contemporary because at least you're closer to something that you can recognize because it's your own time. But really, you know, Titian was a, a great uh, opportunity to say, "Well, look, this is 500 years old, but it's exactly, it's completely relevant and completely alive. These are works that are." fully alive, just like Ovid is, you know, Sure. Uh, and he's over 2000 years, written over, wrote over 2000, oh, about 2000 years ago. But then the next question becomes, so this is a lot about sexual violence. We have Me Too and, and, and similar movements at the moment and all very important and, and, and so on. So how much do you lean into that? Like how much do you actually describe these paintings in, ter- in those terms? And that was a real challenge. I, I think that is something that I don't know whether we got right. We did it differently from what the Gardner is doing now. They've 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 decided to embrace it more. I was a little bit yes. Um, it's should definitely be talked about. It's 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 clearly part of it. Several of the pictures feature like rape, like uh, situations of rape, and so we describe it rape, you know, uh, in in the text, but we don't. We allow for other interpretations. I think that was that was my or, or for other aspects. Too. So the rape of Europa again. It's a rape scene. It's she's being adopted against her will, and she will eventually be made pregnant by the bull, who's Jupiter, and then uh, the European civilization springs from that. And that's a, in itself in itself a very ambiguous and disturbing concept. You know um, that actually European civilization sprung from a, a rape. But the picture is a, one at one of the same time horrifying because it it really does. Describe that, you know, it's like somebody who loses control uh, who's being adopted against their will. At the same time, it's a kind of funny picture. There's humor in it. There's like the frolicking cupids that sort of mimic her like her her position, but on the other the other way around. Um it's very sensuously painted. It's clearly meant to bring in the male gaze in a stimulating way. And then maybe when you start reflecting on what it is that you're being excited about looking at, like a woman laid out in front of you you realize, oh, this is slightly uncomfortable, you know, like, so this aspect of art being able to convey both emotions, contradictory emotions, both being joyous and horrifying, uh, both being sexy and very awful, you know, and and both being funny and and tragic. All these things are in the painting at the same time. And and this is part of why it's great. You know, like it, it can, it accommodates such a variety of understandings. And if you lean too much into one of them, you lose the other parts and you, you reduce the complexity of the artwork. And, and this idea that I talked about earlier also with hip hop, you know, that, that art is a place to explore these things, things that are real and complicated and not clear <laughs> and not pure, you know. Um, and so, so that, was, uh, that was a real challenge. And I'm, I'm, I've been much more than Sebastiano Michelangelo, I've been really thinking about like what we got right, right, what we got wrong and what we should have done more of and, and things like that because it, it still engages with, with, with issues that are really very complicated and, 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 and of great interest, great public interest at the moment. I guess a, a, perhaps another way to
2: look at this is you're caught between maybe two dangers. So there's looking at this as, well, this is the, the product of, of work that's 500 or 300 or 700 or whatever it happens to be, years old, produced by a community of dead white males or however you want to... Uh, look at it. And so we want to make sure that there is a resonance, there's a relevance, there's a recognition of the applicability of the emotional power and of the themes and of the ideas and of the concepts which speak to the human condition and thus is relevant to our times. And yet on the other hand, you don't want to identify it wholly with our times. You want to recognize that it did come from a different Hmm. civilization, different values. And so you have to play this balancing act of recognizing that yes, there is something universal there. There is something which speaks very much to us today, independent of how long ago it may have been created. And at the same time, it's not a a one-to-one map with our particular values or our orientations or or, or our desires. And you, you have to make a distinction there. And so you presumably have to make sure you don't tilt too far in one direction or the other direction. Yeah, But let me, let me ask you, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time, I'm going to take up a little bit more if you'll let me. I have a few specific questions, uh, which perhaps would be interesting to you, again, from the standpoint of that doesn't look like a dolphin, or shouldn't this Ethiopian princess actually be black as a, as a member of the public? And I want to talk a little bit about Raphael. Uh, and I know you have another exhibit about an yeah. exhibition of Raphael coming up in, in, a, in a little while, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But the standard story that I've heard from you uh, and from many of your colleagues is Raphael was a genius. Raphael was somebody who got along with everybody and was lovable and, and all the rest of that. But he did provoke the ire in a few people, most notably Michelangelo. And again, with the theme of Michelangelo and Del Piombo, they talk about how they're ganging up against Raphael and you allude to this and so forth. And, and the, the, the story that I hear about Raphael is he was clearly a genius, but he stole from everyone. He was this famous magpie who stole from everyone. And he turned it into something that was uh, monumentally magnificent in his own inimitable fashion. But this is a bit hard for me. So I'd like you to, so as a member of the general public, I'm kind of pushing back. And I'm saying, really? So what does that actually mean exactly? Because when I think about people stealing from somebody else and passing it off as their own, I imagine someone saying, "Well, they they found a, a manuscript of a novel that a friend of theirs had uh, down the road, and they passed it off as something they did." Or there's a great scientific discovery that they pretended that they made. There's that sense of stealing. Clearly, we're dealing with something which is completely different here. And in and in the book, you 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 get specific, which is quite nice because in the other uh, things that I watched, I just heard about. Raphael the magpie, Raphael the magpie, Raphael the magpie, but I didn't have any any concrete uh, handle on things. So you talk about well, there's this there's this nude figure in the Sistine Chapel, and then there's the figure of Heraclitus in uh, you know the School of Athens, and there's this sense of you know the body being twisted or there's there are some figures on Parnassus of some women that are leaning in one particular direction. So you 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 point to shapes and people twisting around and 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 then and then when you talk uh, with respect to Del Piombo who got so enraged because he was using uh chiaroscuro in a particular way and then Raphael does this and you know another one of the 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 rooms in the Stanza della Segnatura and so forth and so on. And for me I think to myself, yeah but Stealing, really? I I mean, do you have a, do you, he's just talking about how figures are moving around and how they're changing in space. Um, Presumably every artist at the time is looking at what other people are doing. They're looking at shapes. They're looking at how they're turning. They're looking at how they use paint. They're looking at how they use light. They're looking at how they create. He still had to create the thing. He had to make them integrated. He had to fit them all together. Um, Now, I realize when I say the word stealing, I'm using Michelangelo's words. (laughs) I'm not so much using yours. But it seems a bit overhyped to me as as an outside observer, this notion of it seems like a a better way to say it, and maybe I'm just, you know, Raphael's advocate or something, it's just he was perspicacious. He was in tune to what was happening around and he was part of his creative genius was, was looking around and and being able to harness that in his own fashion. And isn't that really what all great artists are doing? I mean, isn't
1: that- uh, Yeah, Michael did it
2: too. Living in a, in a vacuum.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this is a, a very—it's a fascinating issue and it's, it's its quite complicated. I think in visual art, this was completely accept, accepted in earlier times. You know, you would you would take ideas from others and use them. You might not even interpret them all that differently. Art was regarded as a craft, mostly, visual art. Around this time, that's changing. And Michelangelo is spearheading that change. Suddenly, intellectual property, but it's not called that at the, at, the, at the time, that's an anachronism, but that notion that your genius created this, and if somebody else comes and just copies it, that's some kind of infringement on your autonomy as a, as a genius or whatever. And Michelangelo felt this particularly acutely. And the, the one instance that we describe in the book, which I think has been particularly galling to him, and this is a little controversial because we don't know the exact chronology, but what it seems to me like is that Michelangelo had a, was painting the Sistine Chapel. He had to stop because the Pope was away, and he couldn't. Con- there was no funding, or whatever. He had to wait until he could get to go ahead to do the rest. He had prepared the most famous scene in the ceiling, in the ceiling which is the creation of Adam, with God and the fingers meeting. He prepared that in drawings, but hadn't painted it yet. Raphael got uh, access to, the, to his drawings while he was out, saw the drawing took that particular image of Adam lying, Adam being animated, and used that idea in a painting that he finished before Michelangelo could start painting. That is irritating. you know. Like, that is really irritating. And I think that's part of why Michelangelo loathed him. This is my interpretation of the incomplete facts. Some people will disagree and say that these, these two figures existed independently of each other and not inter- interdependent. I don't think that's the case. I think it's too compelling. I mean, the, 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 there, there are too many similarities for it to be completely uh, independent of each other. I think Raffle was absolutely like that. He was so competitive. Uh, it's true that he got along with everybody, but he also really knew what to do in order to do the, the best po- get the best possible results for, for what he was doing. And, and he was like, ruthless in that sense. But he's also described as this magpie by Vasari and others. That's actually why he becomes the paradigm of a great artist, as opposed to Michelangelo, who's very hard to imitate because he's so personal and so odd. Raphael is an artist that on the surface level, you can imitate because he is somebody who synthesizes, as you say, who brings in the best ideas, the best possible ideas from all over and does a synthesis that actually creates something more magnificent than than the sum of the parts. And that is something that... All young students should learn, is, is, is clearly. And, and when, the, when the art academies are established, Raphael becomes the, the model for, for learning, like learning by looking at others, you know, copying and bringing things in and so on. So that's, that's an aspect of it. So Thief, whatever, you know, you call it, like, it's, there's this dictum, I, sometimes given to Picasso, but I don't think it is, uh, that good artists borrow, great artists steal. And that's kind of, that kind of applies to Raphael. I mean, it's, it's a reductive thing, because obviously it's, it's more than that. Um, but it's, it's not entirely, it's like Shakespeare, you know, he, like a, everything is based on something else, but it becomes gloriously his work. Um, and I think that was what was particularly irritating to Michelangelo is that he, he didn't just copy him. He took it and, and did something with it that he hadn't imagined. That was great. It worked. You know, that was irritating. Yeah. And so I, I, a colleague, an older colleague of mine, Chris Fisher, often uses an analogy that I quite like from the uh, Amadeus, the, the, the play on the movie, where Mozart is going to be introduced to the Archduke, and Salieri has com- composed a, a, a march, and the notes are there. The Duke is not there yet, and he, he's coming in or something. I, I can't remember exactly the sequence of it, but he sits down at the piano and he looks at the notes and he starts playing this march that Salieri has composed, and it's being very sort of flattering but also arrogant. And then he says, Oh, that bit doesn't quite work. How about we do this? And then he starts playing something. You could immediately tell it's much greater, you know, and then he plays on a little bit. Of, that doesn't really work either, does it? So let's do this. And then suddenly he creates something wonderful. He's just improvising on the basis of what Salieri has composed. I mean, this is, of course, anachronistic. It's just in the play, but it's, it explains sort of what Raphael is able to do with, with the inventions that he, you know, he gets from Fra Bartolomeo, for example, who's an uh, older colleague in Florence and from, w- from whom he gets the basic compositional structure of the, uh, the disputa in, in, in the San Senatura. Centura. Um, and he just does something that Fra Bartolomeo would never have been able to do, you know, great as an artist as he is he's not capable of of imagining the potential of what he's come up with Uh, and Raphael can do that so yeah it's what great artists do it's not I mean steal it's 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 always fun to use the word stealing also because somebody was offended like Michelangelo was offended about it you know but actually it's just inspiration you know it's you got to get your material from somewhere I'm sure it was really irritating I mean there's this young beautiful guy who has a lot of success and everything seems to come to him easily you know It's like Mozart and Amadeus. He's very irritating. I don't know. I mean, that's that's probably more complicated than that. There was a bit of sort of a, I mean, to use another cliche, there's a bit of sort of a rock and roll about Raphael. You know, like he he waltzed in and I mean, it, it would have seemed that way, you know, that he just waltzed in and had like all the best commissions and everybody loved him. And, you know, he was constantly with beautiful women and like all this stuff. So I'm sure he was irritating to people who were jealous of him, who had reason to be jealous of him, like Michelangelo. But obviously, he was also an extremely hard worker. I mean, he was unbelievably uh, productive. And it could not, I mean, it's because he was very good also at running. This is another thing that Michelangelo wasn't able to do, nor Sebastiano, to run a big workshop, which is actually what Raphael is more than, he's an entrepreneur. He's He runs a huge operation of craftsmen, of, of humanists, of all kind of artists in order to do very big projects. And he was the chief archaeologist of Rome. He was... The architect of Saint Peter's, he was decorating the Vatican Palace. He was doing private commissions. I mean, it was just unstoppable in terms of his output. So I think it's maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, the morals may play into it. Uh, Vasari again. Go back to Vasari. Vasari uh, can't but can't ignore the fact that there were these, these stories about Raphael and his profligacy, and the Vasari. It, it becomes he turns it into a story of Raphael being. Somebody who had so much love to give, you know, <laughs> like it was like Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, <laughs> uh, I mean, he was so he was so possessed of love. Did you know that that of course that would be some situation, and he would die from it. You know, he died from an excess of love. You know, it's kind of the subtext to to, to Vasarez. I mean, it's you can kind of also see that it's a venereal disease or something. You know, he, or something that came out of having I've been mean, having sex with the wrong person. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. I mean, this is all anecdotal from Azari and others, but uh, the story goes that he, he did not want to admit to his doctors that this was something that he had gotten sick from having sex and therefore uh, he let them let his blood, you know, like yes, uh, let, let them bleed him unnecessarily, and he died from that. He had some fever. I mean, who knows whether it was... It could be anything. I mean, he could also have been affected by, you know, just he overworked. You know, he was probably in a weakened state because he was so busy and stressed.
2: I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about public dissemination of art, the values of art. This, I'm guessing, uh, quite surprisingly to me, will also involve hip hop as well. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear you talk about that. But let me speak very specifically about what the National Gallery does through outreach activities. And because you do a lot of those, and I think many of them are very, very well done, What in your mind has been done well? What has been done not as well as it could have been done to convey the values of art and the values of what the gallery stands for and what it might do in the future? And to what extent has the pandemic actually changed anything?
1: Sure. Uh, I would pick out two recent things that I thought were done really well. Uh, They're quite different. One is we acquired our first painting by Artemisia Jensileski in 2018, I, sub- I, I suddenly forget, you know, the years flow together, especially after the pandemic, twenty eighteen, I think. And the and she was just not an artist that we we had in in, in the collection. They hadn't been a great interest in collecting her. I mean, so the collection is really based on what British collectors collected in the, especially in the in the eighteenth nineteenth century, eighteen nineteenth century. And part of that, that acquisition, I mean, there was it was it was restored, and there was a video online, which I, a series of videos about the restoration process and various other digital content, but we send it on a tour, and I wasn't involved in this, so I'm not taking credit for any of it, I thought it was great. Uh, uh, we send it a tour around the country to four institutions that somehow were connected with women, like women's institutions. So one was a medical practice, a GP's office, basically, uh, where it was. Where, where it was uh, right. One was a, um, a girl's school. Uh, one was a women's prison. And the last was a library, I think. I, I forget. I'm, I'm. I forget now. But it, it look up, and that was a really well thought out tour. You know, like to emphasize this aspect, which is of course very relevant, uh, much talked about, and has a lot of attention now about women in art, and and why aren't there more women artists in collections like the National Gallery, for which there are all kinds of good reasons. But you know, why also didn't we have an Artemisia before now? You know, like that. That is because she's a genuinely great artist that we should have had for a long time. And so I think that was really uh, very successful. And the whole campaign, which was supposed to, and did culminate with a large exhibition, put together very quickly at the National Gallery, a monographic exhibition of Artemisia, which was unfortunately in the middle of the pandemic and therefore was not open for nearly as long as as um, it, it could have been. And what happened, the result of that is that Artemisia, who was... Virtually unknown in Britain is suddenly, if not a household name, then a recognizable name now. And I mean, I attribute that to the gallery's uh, efforts to do this. And the, the exhibition for the like, short period it was open was very popular for an artist that just a couple of years before had been unknown to the general public. Obviously, she's not unknown to art historians at all. But like, that, I think, was, was incredibly successful and, and shows you how quickly things can change. You know, also because her, her life story is also so compelling at the same time, there is a danger, again, of what we talked about before, conflating life and art a little too much. And because she was raped as a young a young girl, and we have transcriptions of the trial to ascribe everything to that, you know, to like have that explain all her art as a problem. On the other hand, it happened, and it was clearly, I mean, as it would be to anybody, uh, a formative experience. So I think that was very successful. The other thing that ties in with the pandemic is that because the gallery wasn't open, we accelerated our digital offerings and it has turned out you know one thing is that we do films very quite high quality like small films and things like that but they require a lot of production uh input and we did quite a few of those during the pandemic where curators would choose a theme and, and tell people about it but what has been really uh, excellent and that's actually before the pandemic but it's just accelerated now is like these more uh, informal ways of of, um, of disseminating digital content, which is like something, something like Facebook Live, where you take around the camera for a tour. You know, we've done that. I mean, we're doing it before. And those get, like, they have a lot of, of views. I mean, really, uh, internationally and across the world. And they're very simple and easy to produce, uh, not expensive. The quality is not great, but they have outsized impact, I think, in terms of disseminating art to a wide audience. And uh, that has been... A discovery. So it's not exactly pandemic related, but the pandemic has obviously ac- accelerated all that. And when you talked
2: about the Artemisia exhibit, it made me wonder after you finish any exhibit or any special project, perhaps at the gallery, presumably there's some sort of a postmortem that gets done. Did this work? Did this not work? How could it have been improved? And so forth. And one of the key indicators must be how many people came. But presumably there are other, or maybe I'm just putting words in your mouth, but I can imagine that there are other indicators as well, which is to say that there are natural quantity indicators, but, but they're, getting back to what you were saying earlier about intellectual theme and substance and development, I can imagine there's also an opportunity to make an evaluation about what worked, what didn't work
1: on a, on a qualitative level. Is that yeah, correct? And absolutely. if so, how does that actually work? Absolutely. I, so obviously those, those um, quantitative indicators are important. And do to an extent dictate what we can do. I mean, it's especially when you invest a lot of money, and these exhibitions are not cheap. So, sure. it is important, and it also there is a, there is um, pressure to even at the National Gallery, and the National Gallery is by far like far from the worst uh, at this. But there is a, some pressure to 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 sort of exhibit the brand names, you know, the things that the, the, the artists that are recognizable. But you just can't keep doing that. So you've got to come up with things. So there are those, those factors. And something like uh, Michelangelo Sebastiano was, was fine. It wasn't a huge success in terms of popular attendance, but it was, it was fine. It did, it did the numbers it was supposed to do, but not more, not more than that. It didn't surprise in that res- respect. And there you have to lean on other things. I feel completely confident that that was a good exhibition. And that's maybe, maybe a little bit arrogant, but it's, it's born out of reactions from people who came to the exhibition generally we do we do polls from people who come to the exhibition generally they're positive and then from fellow professionals and from the fact are you still thinking about that exhibition am i still thinking about it is it still informing my academic work yes right obviously that's a very small sliver of the of, of, of the of the, of the o- hopeful audience of any exhibition whether the scholars are important. interested in it but it is important you know it, it does. If, does it move things forward in some way uh, in terms of understanding these artists or their context or whatever. And I think it did that. I mean, I think we took some risks that, uh, that are controversial still. I mean, we included a picture which may not be by Sebastiano, um, which people really quite vociferously uh, disagree uh, on. And it was deliberate. I mean, it was a deliberate uh, risk. It was a portrait of Michelangelo, ostensibly by Sebastiano. Very damaged, very overpainted. Hard to say whether it was actually by Sebastiano. But it's a 16th century picture. Technical evidence shows that it's not a fake or anything like that, which, um, which some people uh, accused us of, you know, exhibiting a fake, which was I thought was irresponsible because it's clearly from 16th from the, it's from the 16th century. If it's a fake, it's from the 16th century. So I think if 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 it's an exhibition that people still talk about several years later and and still have questions about and that still feeds, I mean, I'm, I've just uh, delivered to the publisher uh, an anthology based on that exhibition on the ins- insights from that exhibition. Of like a dozen scholars all writing about the issues that issues pertaining to to, to that collaboration between Michelangelo and Sebastiano, which I, I'm very happy with. I'm happy with what what it, it, it sort of stimulated in these different scholars. You know the the, the, the different viewpoints they brought to it and new research and, and so on. So I think that's a, that's a, a strong indicator for somebody who's a curator who's minded in that direction. With Titian, I don't know. I mean. And with this, okay, I mean, the other exhibition we haven't talked about, and I'm not going to get into it in, in, in to a very large extent. Another exhibition we're very pleasing to do. The, rent Lotto. the Lotto. yeah. The Lotto was something we do with, with the Prado. It was devised for the Prado and we couldn't do it as big. We had to do it smaller because we didn't have the Saints Wing available. Mm. Um, so we had to do a smaller uh, version of it and cut it back. And that, you know, Lotto is, again, is an artist that's not really known to people. And, and here we're talking not so much scholars. I mean, the, the scholars were fine with it, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much that for me. It was the fact that so many people lingered in that exhibition and came out of it saying, this is amazing. This artist is amazing, you know, yeah. like just general public. Like it's anecdotal. It's not numerical, but like also the, the, the amount of emails I got from people saying Lotto is incredible, you know, and yes, I know. <laughs> but <laughs> like sometimes you just have to put it in front of people, <laughs> you know. Uh, he is incredible. And he is, again, an artist like Titian who is, I mean, even more than Titian is unfiltered, you know, you, you can relate directly to those portraits. It was portraits, you know, and he's such a great portraitist and it's so unfiltered. And the story we told there was like how he tells the story of stories of his sitters, but he tells his own story through his sitters as well. And you can see his own life reflected in the development of his portraiture. And that proved very compelling, you know, so there was a narrative there. Um, and I think that just really worked very well. And, uh, and in some ways, I don't know, the, the Prado's show was more magnificent, and, and obviously I would wish we could have done something as, as comprehensive as that, but the, the, we made a virtue out of our constraints by focusing on selections of pictures and, 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 and then leaving out a bunch of stuff, uh, which I think actually maybe somehow focused our narrative. So that, that was a really great experience, a little bit like Artemisia, not as big, you know, not as, it doesn't make a big, as big a splash, but it was that experience of people, you know, anecdotally, but like a lot of people just saying, wow, this artist is fantastic, you know. And that is the greatest joy you can have as a curator. It's like people discovering something and just enjoying it. It makes people think about it. The artist or something else, you know, that you, that you stimulate thought and conversation and 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 joy. It's really just great. It, it's, it, it was a very, very pleasing exhibition to work on in that respect. And so, and with Titian, it, it remains to be seen, I mean, because it was closed for most of the time, I was expecting some Me Too-related controversies around it, and there was a little bit, but it, it, unfortunately... <laughs> It was close. You know, I, I, I would have relished some of that, you know. It, it's, uh, and I think they'll be looking at what they're doing in Boston, and, and they might get more of it. There did not not much happen in Spain either. It was also during the pandemic. So hopefully uh, the Boston iteration will inspire more debate.
2: And presumably, even when it was open, people were rather significantly distracted.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: The timing was not obviously very good. No. Uh, let, let me ask you a little bit about, maybe this is outside of your bailiwick And maybe you don't feel like opining on it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So in terms of what the national, we we talked about the general public. That's obviously very important. Uh, When I mentioned the difference between quantitative and, and qualitative analysis after an exhibition, I certainly just want to clarify. I didn't mean to imply that quantitative numbers don't matter. Obviously, if you hold an exhibition and nobody comes, then you're in trouble. You haven't succeeded but uh, I just meant to imply oh, that yeah, it's yeah, one factor, yeah, yeah. but it's by no means no, the only no, factor that one, one has
1: to take. And some exhibitions should also make a loss. It's not they don't have to all make money. You know that, And that is part of our exhibition strategy, that certain exhibitions pay for other exhibitions. So we can do some of those things that uh, aren't going to make us a ton of money.
2: Yeah. But I, I wanted to talk about uh, so there's the general public, but then there's also it's a terrible word to use, but I'm, I don't know any other word off the top of my head, educational value. And what I mean by that is is being in the formal educational system, exposing younger people, exposing children to art. And you run in, I could imagine you run into all sorts of parallel issues about this notion of snobbishness, high culture, low culture that you mentioned previously. And so it was complicated. And I also realized that there are all sorts of political aspects uh, over which the gallery doesn't have purview, let alone yourself. But are there things that could and should be done in your view through the National Gallery and or other institutions in order to encourage greater artistic appreciation among younger people? And if so, what would they be?
1: It's something that is a priority at the gallery, our education department. It's unfortunately something that we as curators are not as involved with as we perhaps could be. And I think I would like to see more. And we are working on that. There have been some changeovers in the various departments and so on. But I would like to see more of a a fluid collaboration between curatorial and and education and it's certainly important. I think you know so all those sort of in, the intimidation factor of art or snobbishness or whatever you want to call it. All these issues around, especially older art, they don't apply to children. Like children don't have it. So it's it's learned behavior. You know, if you bring in children, they they will at a certain once before they reach a certain age, where they feign uh, disinterest when they get a bit older. You know, uh, the the sort of tween years and then and into teenagehood it's hard. I mean, I think that that is a, a legitimately difficult, uh, challenge, but when they, when they're young, they're, they're really open and and it's fantastic to take around children. I mean, I think it's so, so, and if you can get them familiar with old art at that stage, you're, you're doing well. And we do a lot of that. I mean, there is a lot of that at the gallery also that involves children coming in and drawing and, and, uh, and, and doing other creative activities, responding to the art. We have a program of exhibitions. Take one picture where, where, schools around the country, engage with one picture in the collection and do art based on it through a a term, or I can't remember if it's through a term or a year. And then it's exhibited at the National Gallery, like their artworks. And the level of quality that some of these kids deliver, it's just, astonishes me every year. I I think, so, so the gallery does do a lot of this. The question I think is how you retain the interest. These are young children. How do you retain the interest as they grow older and generate a lifelong appreciation? And um, besides saying that it's important, I, I, I'm not sufficiently involved in it, uh, in the work, to say exactly what needs to happen. It's certainly not something that the galleries uh, is ignoring. I mean, again, schools and, and, and so on, uh, there is a whole program of getting school. But, but art is taught much less in schools than it used to be. So, so institu- institutions like ours really have a, an outsized role to play. It is striking to me, in a more general way, how our culture is extremely visualized, but that the critical vocabulary around visual input, like images, is just nowhere near our uh, critical vocabulary around language. And that has a lot to do with our schooling. We learn how to read a text and criticize it and sort of analyze and criticize. We don't really learn that with images to the same extent. Yeah. And I think that's hugely problematic because we are a society that's, that is... Governed by images more and more, not least in social media, and and images can be manipulated in, in in such sophisticated ways, and that that is a development that will continue. That critical engagement with images is paramount, I think, for democracy, and 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 all sorts of other things. I mean, this I don't think the museums themselves can, or and similar institutions can can lift this. It's it's a heavy burden to lift. Sure, it's not not unilaterally.
2: I just mean our. our can you point to anything that you, that specific that you can say, gosh, if, if we could be doing a little bit more of this sort of thing or a little bit uh, less of that sort of thing? And again, it's not, it's not a particularly fair question to be asking you because it's not actually your day job. No. I appreciate all of
1: that. I think our social media strategy is very important in, in, in this respect to reach young people. Exactly how you do it, I'm not sure, I, 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 but I'm sure we could do, be, be doing more of it and, and focus more on how to disseminate this kind of information through social media, uh, through collaborations with the right type of influencer. You know, it's, it's, I mean, obviously we're not in the, in the business of going total pop and, and, and sort of and our content. So it is a way of finding the right influencers to work with and, and really getting ahead of, of developments on social media. It's, it's, it's TikTok and it's Instagram and, and, and things like that. And we are in those media, but TikTok only since recently. I think those, those are going to, whether you like it or not, they're going to be important because that, that is a means of communication for, for younger people uh, and also older people, but especially younger people. So I, I think that is going to be important. But exactly what content and how you, you do it, uh, I'm probably too old <laughs> to fully understand it.
2: Wow. Well, I'm not sure anybody fully understands yeah. it.
1: And it's such a rapid development too. But I think that is where it's good. Another thing we've been doing, uh, which has been put on hold out through the pandemic, is that we've had... Uh, something called the young producers which recruits i mean obviously people who want to come uh, from a very very diverse backgrounds young people from very diverse backgrounds who are invited in mm. on a kind of unpaid fellowship for a period of time i think i can't remember whether it's a year where they they do work in the educational department that like creative work around the collection so it can be art it can be it can be communicating about art cool. uh, it can be a variety of of activities based on the collection, but that they generate and we provide the equipment and the expertise. And I think that's uh, that's been a very interesting program. And, and and some of the things that have come out of it have been fascinating. And and indeed, they've come from a more diverse audience than we see once people get out of school. Yeah. The people who, who return voluntarily and not as part of their school program still tends to be not diverse enough. Yeah. So that kind of outreach where you bring people in and show, look, there's all this wonderful stuff that you can work on. And you can set the terms of how you want to do it. I think that's another uh, vitally important type of outreach.
2: Let's talk about, uh, so again, thank you very much for your time. Uh, You'll be glad to know that I'm veering towards a conclusion. So I'm not going to keep you here for the next three weeks. I just wanted to get a sense of your future, next projects, and in particular, a specific question I alluded to at the very beginning, my imagining, without knowing, of course, my imagining that you might be torn in all sorts of Different directions. You are an art historian, you're interested in, in research, but you can't spend all day doing research. In addition to the exhibitions that have a research component to them, in addition to the writing that has a research aspect to it, you're involved in, in, in the maintenance of the collection. You're, I'm sure, involved in all sorts of bureaucratic issues. You're involved in support and collaborations with your colleagues. To what extent is that frustrating for you? To what extent is it the right sort of balance for you? To what extent do you say to yourself, geez, I've had enough of this. Yeah. I want to uh, chuck it all and, and just go off and, 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 and be in an ivory tower for five years and write different things or think about different things. How, does, how is it working for you in terms of your own intellectual development?
1: I mean, I think the pandemic has been incredibly helpful in this. I have really enjoyed doing the exhibitions that I've been involved in. I've gotten to a point where other things, other aspects of my job are more attractive now. And The pandemic helped because activity was necessarily slower in the museum. So there was more time to look at research. And so I managed to catch up with that aspect of my job to an extent that I would not have been able to otherwise. It would have been much more frenetic going through 2020, especially where I would have had both Titian and Raphael. And so I don't have a big exhibition on the docket now. Raphael is coming up in April, but a lot of the work was done pre-2020. I mean, it's still a lot of work. But it's in April. And so after April, I, I don't have anything. And that means I can concentrate more on collections research and really getting into what I've been wanting to do, but putting off for a long time. And I'm happy to say that our department has decided to commit resources and time to this. It's the cataloging of our paintings. So we have this program of collection catalogs, these very big books, which very detailed studies of each work. And over the last 20 years, several volumes have been, quite a few volumes have been published, but obviously there's much work to be done. It's not done. And I will be, hopefully, be focusing primarily on, on, on working on those catalogs. One on the Venetian paintings from 1500 to 1540, which it's the part of the Italian collection, well, one of the parts of the Italian collection that Nicolas Penny did not, uh, he's done three of these, like the former director, a former, also former curator, uh, but former director uh, most recently. The one he didn't do, I didn't have time, uh, even though he managed to do three. It was very impressive. So, so th- that one, and then I'm, I'm editing the Central Italian one at the same time, which is going to be other authors. So managing that kind of research is going to be uh, my primary uh, activity for the next few years. But obviously, there are going to be other things. Also managing staff in the department. I, I have great colleagues and also, also some fairly recent additions to the team that I'm involved in managing. And I think that is another thing that that's another aspect of the job that I am really enjoying being part of a team and collaborating and, and seeing their projects develop and, and, yeah. and, and come to fruition. So so it's very much that. But and I don't really mind I I don't really mind having a lot going on. I mean that's I can't really help it. I do a lot of extracurricular stuff too, with comics and so on. I mean I'm the chairman of the Danish Comics Council. <laughs> so help me God, you know, uh, which is a grassroots organization that uh, works for an institutionalization of comics culture in Denmark. We're working on establishing a, a comics museum. And we have an, a, an annual series of, of, of awards, a little bit like the Grammys or something, you know, and like things like that. I mean, also involved in, in this podcast about comics that we talked about earlier. Right. So I, I, I like to keep my hands on a lot of different things. It some things we'll probably have to give at some point, but it's always a give and take. And all of this is interesting stuff to be working on. So that's helpful. I, 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 I haven't gotten to a stage where I'm, where I'm tired of any of these things. And so that is really helpful. If I were continuing to just do exhibitions, I probably would burn out because they really are very, very demanding and, and, yeah. and hard work. And I'm very happy with the ones I've done. It's not that I never want to do one again, but I'd like, really like to focus on other aspects now of, of my job. Yeah. And the collection is the one that often gets put to the side because there are more pressing projects. And that's so really that is uh, that is the, the our reason for being, you know, it's the collection. That's why we're there. And the collection, I mean, as you said, it's it, the National Gallery becomes one of the destinations for many people coming to London and also revisiting because it is such a, a unique place in that not only is it a great art collection, but it is this particularly focused collection that only has painting, which is, I, I, I slightly regret that there is not sculpture, it would be great, and other art, uh, I sometimes miss that there is not all these other things, drawings and all this, but it's a collection of highlight. It's like a compilation album, Yeah, you know, it's the like the best of the best, So I, and it's not that big. So you can actually, you, you develop a familiarity with the collection very quickly, and then you start revisiting, and again and again, and you, you, you get to know the pictures in a way that, it's harder uh, in, in bigger collections. Not that you can't do it, but it's, it's, it's just harder. And so that it makes it a, a uniquely well-organized place to develop this kind of long-term loyalty. And, and the same for the staff. I mean, we really get, grow very attached to the, the paintings that we are responsible for. And so that, that is really, I, I really hope to, to, to get much further than that and get to know the paintings better. I know them quite well, but I, I don't feel I know them well enough. <laughs> when you talk about the
2: National Galleries collection. At some level, I can imagine, and maybe I'm just romanticizing, but at some level, I can imagine putting myself in your position, there would be times when you would think these are my pictures. Of course, they're not really your pictures yeah. and so forth. But but there's an, almost a sense of personal ownership. You're going into your living room. Of course, you can go in whenever you want. It must be a, a, a very special experience to to have a sense of of ownership over these absolutely magnificent works of art.
1: Yeah. So, I really try to avoid describing it in those terms. I know I'm just a temporary historian of these (laughs) pictures. No, no, but there is a tendency amongst curators to say my pictures, you know, there is a tendency of that. There's a problematic aspect to this. I think some certain curators also... Are little too touchy-feely about their pictures. You know, they actually touch them too much. You know, <laughs> uh, I really try to <laughs> avoid that. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying that my colleagues are like that at all. But occasionally you see that. But it is true. You you develop a, a relationship these pictures. I mean, you look at them so much, and they become. You know, they're they're so very they're very present as your responsibility, and you become very invested on whether they're on display or not, or whether whether you, whether you could like sometimes you can't put them on display, or whether they're going on loan, and where they're going on loan to. And, What's happening on, on route? When you hear that there's some holdup, you want to know what's going on, you know. So you do follow them. They do become sort of I don't know how to describe it, but there is a there is a connection there. Uh, that once you leave your job, I'm sure it's going to be really difficult. <laughs> like I, <laughs> once I leave the National Gallery, whenever that happens, I mean, I'm going to feel I'm going to miss that particular relationship with those pictures. Yeah, uh, and I, I I will be have to be aware that. That's no longer the case. You, know, you, might, you might guard it somewhere in, inside you that you, know, you feel that, that when you go to the gallery and you see them, you feel, still feel that connection. But somebody else is now the custodian. And it is a temporary thing. It's a temporary part of a much larger story that these pictures are, are living.
2: Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked? Is there anything you'd like to talk a little bit more about? Is there something I've elided or needs more emphasis in your view?
1: I think uh, you've been great at... Sort of maintaining some kind of structure to this, I, I do know that there was some that were some tangents I went off on, but not too much.
2: No oh, tangents are yeah. good.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're good, but sometimes it becomes very disorganized, and you have to return to something. So I don't think actually, you know, um, I wish I, I don't know. Like, the, 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 I think we've touched upon the most most important aspects. I the, the Titian. I mean, I could go on about for hours about the Titian Poesia, but I don't think maybe that's necessary. I mean, th- people can look at my talks elsewhere and whatever. Um, I mean, they're, sh- they're so rich, those pictures, and they've like, occupied so much of my mental space. But I don't think it's necessary here. I mean, we've I've, I've gone into some of the issues, like the main issues about how they're relatable and and how they speak to very directly to things that are just basically human and then to the, the controversies potential controversies around their content. And this idea that, that I think we fight against constantly, especially these days where there's such a polarization in every way of of discourse, that, that art can hold opposing thoughts very comfortably within it. And that is why it's great and interesting and in why we return to it. Art is not something that just has one sense that wants to communicate one thing it's not a it's it's it's, it's it, that's not what it is i mean it's just and i i think that's an increasingly frustrating and hard to convince people about the rape of europa i mean people want to see that straightforwardly as a rape scene and just horrible and yes it's that i mean absolutely <laughs> it's absolutely that but it's also as i said you know it's it's a humorous picture it's a big, it's a very sensual picture it's a picture that also, you know, has joy to it. And that's very offensive to people who see it as a rape scene and horrible. Then other people will say, don't go on about this sexual violence stuff. You know, like that's not a, you know, different period. People were regarding it differently back then. It's, it's, you have to have the historical context. Stop with this Me Too nonsense. You know, that's the other thing you get. And, of, and it's like, no, no, that, this is important. Me, Me Too is, is there for a reason. And, and sexual violence is, a, is an ever-present thing. So let, let's, dis, let's by all means discuss it. And I think Titian was very aware of, of this. I mean, he, he was not a feminist. You know, that was not a thing at that time. You know, but he was certainly somebody who was interested in the inner life of women. And that's clear from the beginning of his career and, and the position and what they experienced. And I think he conveys that in these pictures. There is an aspect of them where, yes, the historical t- context of rape is different, but it's still something that, that the woman would not have <laughs> enjoyed. It was still a traumatic experience, a violent experience, you know. Uh, and Titian is, is keyed into that. And so I think that's very important to keep in mind as well. And, and is, this is all just to say that it's really challenging to, and I think especially at, at the moment uh, where there is this demand for some kind of Puritan reading of, of artworks. And everything else, uh, whether from one angle or another or a third or whatever, like wh- wherever it's coming from, that is challenging to artists, especially to artists, but also to people who work with and communicate about art, such as curators. It's an interesting thing to, to try to navigate, and I don't know how one best does it. And I, I, I kind of don't want to get into this because it's a whole different kettle of fish, but just to notice that this is also informed of my, my work and comics and cartooning and the danish cartoons and the of the prophet muhammad which is something i've been very involved in and which is an extremely complicated subject and the controversies around that and the tendency to see those cartoons in one way again the famous bomb in the turban on one hand it's a racist cartoon on the other hand it's a cartoon that's that polemically but still importantly raises certain important issues around how Islam is practiced and it can be both you know it's it's horrible and it's also useful and and that gets lost it's either one or the other it's either freedom of speech or racism you know it's and then when when you add to the mix the fact that you can actually you know you risk your health and your life if you publish it or talk about it or promote it in some way you know that that sort of puts everything into an even more complicated perspective yeah. I mean, art has always aroused strong emotions. I mean, it's not the first time in human history that we have tendencies towards aniconism or iconoclasm, but we are having a somewhat heated moment at the moment in, 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 in several domains, and I, it's, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> but it's, it's also fascinating, and I think it's important to, to keep discussing it and, and, and keep offering alternatives. If if one's job is to communicate about art, I think that communicating that is, is really crucial, that it's not monolithic. It is very open to interpretation. And that is indeed why it arouses such anger, but also such
2: devotion. I didn't want to get into the Danish cartoons. Uh, That is to say, I didn't want to get into the Muhammad cartoons because that's a whole other... It's such an enormous, (laughs) complicated... (laughs) can of worms or whatever you want to say. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But on the other hand, it's important. And it's important to not at least tip your hat to it or recognize it or be aware of it or sweep it under the rug. And, And I would submit that that's a particularly pernicious aspect of our age, and I'm not implying that other ages haven't had their difficulties or that this is a once in a millennium type of uh, issue, but it seems as if the unwillingness to embrace different points of view and actually have legitimate dialogue about a spectrum of different topics is, is an increasing point of concern. And I certainly want to thank you very sincerely for all of your efforts at the National Gallery and the gallery in general's efforts to contribute in a
1: positive direction towards that. Well, thank you. So yeah.
2: if that means that I have to start embracing hip-hop
1: music. <laughs> I don't know. Then, I just you know, think it's incredibly hip-hop is violent and misogynistic, a lot of it, you know, but it's it's also a promise of freedom from constraints. It's 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 again, it's two things. <laughs> you know, it's liberating and and perpetuating of things that are the opposite of liberating. But you know. Art is messy, <laughs> just like reality is. I mean, it has to be. It, it's, and yes, it does affect you. You know, it does promote bad stereotypes. And it does, you know, it, it's also folly to say that there is no correlation between what art says and how people then react to it. But it's not a direct one. Well, that's a great point to
2: end on. Thanks a lot, Matthias. I really had a great time. I threatened you that I was going to keep you here for a long time. Sure, and, right. Uh, I see,
1: yeah. Well, I had a great yeah, time. Me too. Thank you.
2: I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to IdeasRoadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit HowardBurton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into to another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.